This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 153rd edition of the program. Today is July 26th, and this episode of the show is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week, and that includes Adam Smith, Diego Rivera, Ethan White, Mary Hale, Sean Kennedy, Simon Jibru, Tom Tesoro, Tyler Robles, and Vernon Hector. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's show, we've got a gigantic episode for you. First, we'll talk about CNN's Democratic Party presidential rankings for 2020, and we'll discuss how they're trotting out the debunked Bernie bro myth in order to use it now against individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cynthia Nixon. Also, the Democratic Party establishment has a plan to stop progressives. I'll tell you what they want to do to wage a counter-revolution in order to defeat Bernie Sanders' progressive political revolution. And also on this episode, centrist Democrats have made it clear that they are not fans of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'll tell you why she's not making any friends in Washington, D.C. And on the subject of AOC, Meghan McCain of The View, as well as Fox News anchors, decided to bash her. So we'll talk about what they said, and in another segment, we'll discuss how Fox News accidentally brought on someone who went against Republican Party orthodoxy, and it was hilarious. We'll also talk about the latest episode of Sasha Baron Cohen's Who is America, where another Republican made a complete fool out of himself. And we'll discuss Michelle Wolf's satirical take on ICE and Dave Rubin's suggestion that the left will soon become violent. Additionally, we'll talk about Trump's latest Twitter threats against Iran and how John Bolton is trying to further fan the flames and finally we'll close the show by talking to congressional candidates sarah smith and kenneth mejia so that's what we've got on the agenda for today i hope you guys enjoy the program Chris Saliza and Harry Anton of CNN put together what they call a definitive ranking of 2020 Democratic presidential contenders, and it's about what you'd expect from journalists at CNN. So sitting at number one is former Vice President Joe Biden, and we then have Elizabeth Warren at number two, Kamala Harris at number three, Kirsten Gillibrand at number four. And finally, at number five, we then reach the most popular politician in the country, Bernie Sanders. Now, obviously, I disagree with the rankings here. I think Bernie Sanders should be at the top of this list. But when we get to the second part of the list, that's where it takes an even odder turn. So for whatever reason, they put Eric Holder on this list. Now, I don't get the logic here because I don't think you can find a single person in this country, probably including people from Eric Holder's own family, who'd be excited about him running. But 
they state that since Eric Holder is from Queens and Donald Trump is from Queens, then they both have that shtick to where, you know, it's two guys from Queens facing off. And they think that that's exciting. And also, they state that Eric Holder should be included on this list because he's friends with Obama. And someone who's close to Obama, well, obviously, you know, that's going to play over really well in a Democratic Party primary. So that's their logic. Additionally, they have individuals like Montana Governor Steve Bollock, Cory Booker, Mitch Landry, who nobody in the country knows, but the reason why they put him on here is because he's more of an outsider who hasn't held federal office. He was a former mayor, and this is someone who presumably, according to them, would appeal to more anti-establishment liberals since he's not part of that D.C. swamp. And they also include Sherrod Brown. Now, to be fair to them, they actually admit that some of the inclusions here are relatively odd, but the weirdest thing about this list is that how can you put the most popular politician in the country at number five and put someone like Joe Biden, who is part of the establishment at a time when there's this anti-establishment fervor, at number one? Well, here's what they say about why they placed Bernie at number five. Sanders is one of the most beloved politicians within the Democratic Party, even though he's not technically a Democrat. With strong, favorable ratings, he is a proven vote-getter in presidential primaries, earning 43% of the 2016 Democratic primary vote. And in a party that is shifting left, Sanders was left before it was cool. So why is Sanders not higher? He's a white male, Ugh. and Democrats may be looking to turn the page from 2016. Do Democrats really want another primary in which they have to argue about whether one of the major candidates is actually a Democrat or an independent? Well, of course we don't want that, but that's not an argument normal voters care about. When you poll Democratic Party voters, they overwhelmingly approve of Bernie Sanders. So the only people trotting out this tired argument about he's not a Democrat are Democratic Party loyalists, neoliberal hacks, cable news pundits who think that's something that's going to resonate with ordinary Americans. But for the most part, Bernie Sanders isn't included here because... He's a white male. That's disgusting. I mean, just the thought of a white male makes me want to vomit. So, since Bernie Sanders is a white male and he's at number five, why would they put a different white male at number one? Well, here's what they have to say. The former vice president may not seem like the perfect fit for this moment in the Democratic Party. He's older, 75, white, male, and has been in electoral politics for more than four decades. And yet, Biden has something that no other candidate in the field has. First, he's on top of early polls gauging the 2020 field. He's leading in national polls, early primary state polls, and and in a matchup against Trump, that's no guarantee Biden wins the nomination. But if history holds, it's an indicator he'll be right there until the end. So even though Joe Biden is just another white male, the reason why they placed him at the top of their list is exclusively based on how well he's performing in some of these polls, but they're either lying to you or they're misinformed about other polls from 2017 that showed Bernie Sanders was actually polling ahead of Joe Biden. A University of New Hampshire poll found that Bernie Sanders had a seven-point lead over Biden, and when you look at a September poll from Zogby, Sanders had an 11-point lead ahead of Biden. Now, it's true that more recent polls have in fact found Joe Biden is surging, unfortunately, for all of us. But when you are basing an argument off of polls and you're a political analyst, then you always want to take into account 
aggregate polling data. You never want to base your argument off of one poll because that one poll can be flawed. So when you account for multiple polls and, and aggregate polling data, it makes your argument more sound because if numerous polls have the same findings, then that gives your argument a little bit more credibility. But what they're doing here is they're just ignoring any poll from 2017 that found Bernie Sanders ahead of the pack. They're ignoring that Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. So I don't fully understand why they make this poll-based argument and put Joe Biden at the top. Uh, I think it may just be a case of cognitive dissonance to where they don't want to admit that Bernie Sanders was actually doing really well and has a great chance, but they went on CNN to kind of explain their reasoning a bit more, and unfortunately for them, it really didn't get much clearer because their logic still didn't make any sense. You guys have a piece out that's getting a ton of buzz and a ton of attention ranking the top 10 potential uh, contenders for 2020. Uh, you've got Joe Biden at the top, Saliza. Walk yes. me through why that's an exciting pick for the party. Well, I don't know that it's an exciting pick for the right. party, but I don't know if Donald Trump is president. The question is, do Democrats want to pick their version of Trump or the anti-Trump? Biden, and? in some ways, is the anti-Trump. Uh, and I, right now, Harry and I wrote write about this in the piece. Typically, the guy or gal who is in first, who is ahead in early polling, tends to be there right at the end. That's Joe Biden right now, ahead in national mm -hmm. polling, ahead in early state polling, and ahead, by the way, it's kind of got missed, but ahead by double digits over Donald Trump uh, in general election polling. So th at this date, if you're betting, Joe Biden is your best bet. The mm -hmm. question, obviously, is he's 75 years old. Does the party want that now? Biden is sort of the establishment wing of the party. Uh, and then the next four people Harry and I have ranked, uh, two through five, are all liberals without mm -hmm. question. And, and I would say liberals and trying to get left of each other as fast as they can. So mm -hmm. Warren Harris, Gillibrand Sanders. The thing that the argument for Sanders is he's been there the longest. The argument against right. him is do Democrats really want to relitigate 2016 in any way, shape or form? Right. And again, Bernie Sanders is 76 years old. Is that the road they want to go? Did you uh, not but, hear me at the beginning of the segment that 70 is the new 40? I, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, but but so so I would know. I do think Kamala Harris, uh, Harry and I have her third. I do think she has real hmm. potential. Mm -hmm. uh, first Indian American and African American elected mm -hmm. to the Senate in California. You don't write a memoir if you're a politician in 2019 unless you are thinking about running for national offices. There are not coincidences um, like that. What, two, two points. One, one issue, Harry, with, with uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand that will follow her, that she'll have to answer for is her much more moderate views when she was representing upstate New York. Very different than calling to abolish ICE. Now, what about, um, what about uh, Elizabeth Warren and the, the Pocahontas attacks on the president? I mean, do things like that stick, though? Maybe they stick in a general election, but certainly I think she'd wear it as a badge of honor in a primary campaign. Yeah. And so I think that's a big part of what's going on here. I think why we have Liz Warren, too, is she is someone, I believe, who could link up both the left wing of the party as well as the more establishment wing of the party. And when you're trying to win a Democratic primary, remember, it's proportional. So you can't just win with 25% of the vote. You need to be able to put together 40, 45, 50% in order to win a nomination. And in my opinion, Liz Warren may be right. able to do that. Some interesting... And, and really, go ahead, Chris. I, I was just going to say, Bobby, one thing that, to remember, too, is that uh, if Harry and I did this list at this time in for Republicans at this time in the 2016 cycle, <laughs> we wouldn't have Donald Trump in the top 10. Right. We pro Harry might have 
had him in the top 20 because, as I mentioned, he's smarter than me. But I wouldn't oh, have had stop him. stop it. I wouldn't have had him in the top 20. So, look, things change, right? This totally. is We are analyzing what we know now mm -hmm. based on history, based on where we are now, mm -hmm. and based on Trump being in the White House. But, you know, I mean, if your favorite candidate isn't in that top 10, if it's, you know, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, if it's uh, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, yeah. this does not mean that person yeah. has no chance. Uh, I do think it's interesting, two names that struck me on this list, guys, Harry, uh, Mitch Landrew uh, and Sherrod Brown as well. Why are they striking yeah. to you? I, I think, you know, we're looking, number one, perhaps outside of the normal sort of choices and a mayor, very, very difficult to imagine normally that a mayor would end up being a, you know, a major party nominee. But we could, in fact, see that this time around, especially mm -hmm. if the party is looking for someone with experience, but still outside of Washington. Mm -hmm. In terms of Sherrod Brown, Look, he has a very populist record. If you're looking for a candidate who can beat Trump in the Midwest and beat him on his populist ways, who better than a Midwestern senator who is a populist? So one thing they say is Biden is the anti-Trump. Now, that's technically true, but he's not the right type of anti-Trump. Now, what I mean by that is Joe Biden is an establishment insider, whereas Donald Trump, even if he's doing the bidding of the political establishment, while well, he's still perceived as an anti-establishment politician. So when you have someone who's from the establishment go up against someone who is perceived as being anti-establishment, even if Trump is a faux populist, well, that's not really going to go over too well, or it may not go over too well, when there are so many people who are disenfranchised and disenchanted by the political establishment, both parties. So if you really want to defeat Donald Trump and that's what you care about, Biden isn't the right person at this place in time. Now, they also state Biden is sort of the establishment wing. They admit that. And the next four people Harry and I have ranked, two through five, are all liberals without question. Now, the way that he kind of characterized the other individuals, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, and of course, Bernie Sanders is that they're all kind of in this race to out liberal each other. But really, that's a mischaracterization because what this is about is everyone trying to catch up with Bernie Sanders. You have people like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand suddenly parroting the same policy ideas that Bernie Sanders was talking about that people like Hillary Clinton said will never ever come to pass just a few years ago. And now all of a sudden they're talking about things that Bernie Sanders is also talking about. So to say that they're trying to out liberal each other, that's not necessarily true. It's them trying to catch up with Bernie Sanders. Now the one area where Bernie Sanders actually falls behind is on abolishing ICE. Kirsten Gillibrand has actually outflanked him from the left here. Now look, I've made the case to Bernie Sanders that you've got to come out and say you support the abolition of ICE because there's going to be someone in 2020 who's going to do what the base increasingly wants. Now, 43% of Democratic Party voters want to abolish ICE and he hasn't gotten on board. So that's that's his own fault. But that's the one area, though where you can make the case that Bernie Sanders is going to have to play catch-up and defend himself from the right of another Democrat. So we'll see what happens there, but for the most part, to say that they're all trying to out-liberal each other, no, they're all trying to catch up to Bernie Sanders, generally speaking. Now, one argument that they made for Sanders in his favor is they say Bernie Sanders, you know, he's been there the longest. That's the argument for Sanders, according to them. But the argument against him is do Democrats really want to relitigate in any way, shape or form 2016? And also Bernie Sanders is 76 years old. Well, first and foremost, those arguments against him are not very persuasive because you placed Joe Biden 
at number one on your list, and he's 75 years old. So we don't care about age. We care about policy. Now, the argument that they say for Sanders that works in his favor is that he's been there the longest. But this is not why we like Bernie Sanders or why <laughs> or why he's electorally viable. Him being there the longest doesn't matter to any of us. What matters to us are the policies that he's promoting. Don't care about how long he's been there. So it kind of goes to show you just how out of touch they are that they think he's appealing to us because of how long he's been there. Don't care how long he's been there. Yes, he's been there for about 152 years. He's been in politics that long, but we don't care. We care about the policies. That's what it's about. Now, one thing that they say is true, which I think does make Elizabeth Warren a threat, is that they state... Elizabeth Warren can link up both the left wing of the party as well as the establishment wing of the party. So this is one thing I do worry about because knowing that they need to appeal to progressives and they need progressives like myself to win, more centrist-minded neoliberals might opt for someone like Elizabeth Warren knowing that that's how they can win us over. Now, Elizabeth Warren is still a great choice. She's definitely been a disappointment in the past and continues to disappoint in many ways, but she is leagues better than someone like Joe Biden. However, she is nowhere near the level of Bernie Sanders in terms of progressivism. So I do worry that her crossover appeal between neoliberals and progressives could make her someone who is a force to be reckoned with in 2016, but again, or in 2020, excuse me. But even if she were to win, I still think Elizabeth Warren, someone who supports Medicare for all, getting money out of politics, regulating Wall Street, is a great choice who can potentially beat Donald Trump. Now, when it comes to Sherrod Brown, they state he has a very populist record. If you're looking for a candidate who can beat Trump in the Midwest and beat him on his populist ways, who better than a Midwestern senator who is populist? Um, someone who's actually populist, like Bernie Sanders, who won numerous Midwestern states. He won uh, Michigan, Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Indiana... Sherrod Brown, I don't believe he even co-sponsors Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So if you're not on board with a policy that more than 60% of the country supports, and what, more than 70% of Democratic Party uh, voters support, you're not a populist. You don't get to claim the mantle of populism if you're against a really popular common sense policy. So that's their ranking. I wanted to talk about it because it makes no sense to me if I had to make a list Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren would be near the top. I certainly wouldn't place Bernie Sanders at number five. But look, to be fair to them, they state that this is really, you know, um, it's early, right? Things can still change. And I do agree with that. We don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully, Bernie Sanders will win. We don't know. And we also have to anticipate shenanigans from the DNC. They rigged it in 2016. And if we're not fully expecting them to go above and beyond and do that again, I think we're being naive. So we don't know how this will play out. But certainly at this point, Bernie Sanders is going in with an advantage he didn't have before. He has the name recognition. He's the most popular politician in the country. And even if Joe Biden is surging in polls, well, when you account for aggregate polling data, they're probably 50-50 in terms of Bernie winning or leading and Joe Biden leading. So their logic makes no sense. I think the goal here was to place Joe Biden at the top in hopes that this would um, discourage progressives from being overly enthusiastic about someone like Bernie Sanders. Because look, if they can kind of make 
it seem as though Joe Biden is inevitable in the same way they did to Hillary Clinton in 2020, then that would behoove them. And a lot of people probably didn't even bother voting for Bernie Sanders in 2016 because they thought, look, it's going to be Hillary. Hillary's going to win this. There's really no point in me voting. So if they can do that again and replicate that strategy, I think that it will be useful. Now, again, I'm speculating about their motives here. Maybe they just genuinely think that someone like Joe Biden has a better shot than Bernie Sanders, and they wouldn't be wrong. But placing Bernie Sanders at number five is illogical. It just is. So I don't really get their list, but again, this is CNN. It's about what I would expect from CNN journalists who are painfully out of touch. I think it's safe to say that progressives have officially gotten the ear of the American political establishment. Now, when I say the establishment, I mean the aggregate establishment, including the Democratic Party, uh, elites in this country, the wealthy, as well as cable news show pundits. We've gotten their attention, and it's clear that they're terrified of us. Now, the reason why I say that is because we've gotten a couple of articles this week that show that they're trying to figure out a way to compete with the momentum progressives have. So, for example, the New York Times published an article about the progressive insurgency within the Democratic Party, and they talked about how progressive gubernatorial candidates like Ben Jealous and Abdul Al-Sayed are representatives from that movement. And in this article, they also highlight all the different primary wins of progressive candidates that have been endorsed by at least one major progressive group, like the Justice Democrats or Our Revolution. And they also describe pressure the Democratic Party is facing as pressure from a new generation of confrontational progressives. And I think that's true. We are more confrontational because we've been screwed over for so long by the American political establishment. We're just done. We're done accepting our crumbs. We're done being in this abusive relationship with the Democratic Party, and we're over it. Now it's time for us to take control of the wheel because Democrats have been driving us off of a cliff. Now, what are Democrats doing if they know about the rise of progressives? What are they doing? Because at this point, it's safe to say that the progressive bus is going to run over every single individual in Washington, D.C. that doesn't get on board. So what are they doing? Well, rather than trying to embrace us and embrace our ideas, well, their response to Bernie Sanders' political revolution is to wage a counter-revolution. So we have this headline from NBC News that I think aptly describes the situation. Sanders' wing of the party terrifies moderate Dems. Here's how they plan to stop it. Party members and fundraisers gathered for an invitation-only event to figure out how to counteract the rising progressive movement. So that's how out of touch they are. When we tell them, hey, the party has become too corporatist, too close to elites, well, they get even closer to elites to figure out how to defeat us rather than trying to welcome us into the party. Unreal. So Alex Seitzwald of NBC News explains, if Senator Bernie Sanders is leading a leftist political revolt, then a summit here of moderate Democrats might be the start of a counter-revolution. While the energy and momentum is with progressives these days, the victory of rising star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, buzz about democratic socialism, and the spread of the Abolish ICE movement are a few recent examples, moderates are warning that ignoring them will lead the party to disaster in the midterm elections and the 
2020 presidential contest. That anxiety has largely been kept to a whisper among the party's moderates and big donors, with some of the major fundraisers pressing operatives on what can be done to stop Sanders if he runs for the White House again. But the first ever Opportunity 2020 convention organized here last week by Third Way, a moderate Democratic think tank, gave middle-of-the-road party members a safe space to come together and voice their concerns. The fact that a billionaire real estate developer, Winston Fisher, co-hosted the event and addressed attendees twice underscored that this group is not interested in the class warfare vilifying the millionaires and billionaires found in Sanders' stump speech. The invitation-only gathering brought together about 250 Democratic insiders from key swing states. Third Way unveiled the results of focus groups and polling that it says shows Americans are more receptive to an economic message built on opportunity rather than the left's message about inequality. Moderates said they feel they're being drowned out by louder voices on the left. So that's obviously ridiculous. Because we're demanding, finally, that our voices be heard, the only people who the party has listened to, they're now saying, well... Our voices are being drowned out. I mean, they're never not going to play the victim, but I do want to get to more details. So the article actually included quotes from more conservative Democrats who think that a progressive policy agenda just won't be electorally viable because if they choose to become unapologetically progressive, then they'll be alienating more centrist and Republican-minded voters they would otherwise win. Now, one of them also referred to the idea of a federal jobs guarantee as a rehash of the New Deal. Remember that time when progressives were so popular that they had to implement term limits because a progressive president kept winning again and again and again? Well, they don't like that. Now, what exactly is their plan? Because... You know, the article talks about a counter-revolution. Well, as Common Dreams' Jake Johnson reports, as a counter to progressive ideas like a federal jobs guarantee, Medicare for All, and expanded Social Security benefits, NBC News reports that Third Way has put forth an apprenticeship program to train workers, a privatized, employer-funded universal pension that would supplement Social Security and an overhaul of unemployment insurance to include skills training. Now, I know what you're probably thinking when you hear that. Isn't this incrementalist approach something that's already been tried before? And the answer is yes, you are correct. We tried this. In fact, you don't have to go back very far to see how this strategy fell flat on its fucking face. You go back to 2016, Democrats ran a centrist, and when they clearly isolated the progressive wing of the party, what did they do? They opt for someone like Tim Kaine, who's to the right of Hillary Clinton, who we all thought was already too conservative, further isolating the party. And what was it that Chuck Schumer said? Well, you know, for every uh, progressive that we lose, we'll pick up a more suburban Republican voter. Turns out that didn't happen. You lost to a game show host, a clown. But they're saying here, look, we've got to we've got to try that same approach again because this time it's going to work. I promise you, it's going to work this time, guys. Even though Democrats may have been wiped out at every single level of government in state legislatures across the country, they've lost the majority of governorships, even though this strategy has led to the utter destruction of the Democratic Party. You know, we've got to try it one more time. And what they're proposing is not even incrementalism. To call it incrementalism is a misnomer. It's a fraction of incrementalism. It's incrementalist incrementalism. That's how uninspiring their policies are. And what they don't understand is that with how 
much the working class is suffering currently, incrementalism of any kind isn't going to be feasible. We need drastic change in order to save the country, to save the working class. But they just don't fucking get it. And when they see progressives and this, you know, enthusiasm from people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, James Thompson, well, they think we've got to wage our own counter-revolution with these more moderate ideas that will definitely win over Republicans. Look, here's the thing. You're not going to win over Republicans. You need to drop this idea. Republicans are going to vote Republican. The moderate Republicans you thought you'd win over in 2016 voted for Donald Trump. You're not going to win them over. You're just not. So at this point, to try the same thing over and over and over, it's just showing how strategically inept you are. The definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's exactly what we're seeing play out here in real time. They think they can trot out the same shitty strategy that led to them losing, and they think it's going to work this time. It's not going to work this time. And I do want to share something that Will Menneker of Chapo Trap House said, because he addresses this notion that, yes, the left and the center need to unite in order to effectively take on Republicans. But Will Menneker echoed something that I've been saying for a long time, but I think he said it more concisely and more direct in a way that they they need to hear. So this is what he said. The line that they keep coming back to is like, look, like, you know, the Republicans are the villain. Like, they're the bad guy. They're the clear and immediate threat. Like, why are you wasting your time, like, attacking us? Let's work together to defeat, like, the real threat, which is the right. And, like, I agree. They, like, the right, the right wing, in, Republicans in control of our government, that's the problem. They are the enemy. However, to the pragmatists out there and the people who don't like purity in politics, yes, let's come together, but get this through your fucking head. You must bend the knee to us, not the other way around. Right. You have been proven as failures, and your entire worldview has been discredited. You bend the knee to us, and then let's fucking work together to defeat these things, not with fucking means testing or market-based solutions, but with a powerful social democratic message like what just happened in the UK. That's what they need to get through their thick skulls. You're going to bend the knee to us. Yes, we all need to unite. The Bernie and the Hillary wings have got to come together to take on Republicans, but you're going to fall in line behind us. Get behind us. You already fucked up. You had your chance and you blew it. You lost to Donald Trump. You're done. Take a hike. It's our turn. If you're going to unite, if there's going to be any unity on the left, it's going to be behind progressives like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because if you think you can continue to suppress progressives and win on incrementalism, then you're going to see again just how electorally viable that makes you. It doesn't make you electorally viable, but the funny thing is that even if they they decided to go with this incrementalism again in 2020 and they lost again, they'd still try it in 2024. That's how delusional this party is. Condescending corporate Democrats don't like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they've recently spoken out against her because they think that she needs to, quote, cool it. 
And what do they want her to cool it on? Well, they think that she's doing too much to put down other members of the Democratic Party. It's laughable, right? But nonetheless, they're not happy with her. And as Mike Lillis of The Hill explains, frustrated Democratic lawmakers are offering Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez some advice. Cool it. Some legislators are voicing concerns that Ocasio-Cortez appears set on using her newfound star power to attack Democrats from the left flank, threatening to divide the party and undermine its chances at retaking the House in a midterm election year when leaders are scrambling to form a united front against President Trump and Republicans. She's carrying on and she ain't gonna make friends that way, said Representative Bill Pascrell. Joe conceded, wished her well, said he would support her so she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. She's not asking my advice, he added, but I would do it differently rather than make enemies of people. Asked if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is indeed making enemies of fellow Democrats, Pascrell didn't hesitate. Yes, he said. No doubt about it. Representative Alcee Hastings offered a similar message, saying success in the 435-member House comes slowly and hinges largely on the ability of lawmakers to forge constructive relationships with other members. Alienating more senior lawmakers within your own party, he warned, will only stifle the ability of Ocasio-Cortez to get anything done even despite her newfound celebrity. Meteors fizz out, Hastings said. What she will learn in this institution is that it's glacial to begin with and therefore no matter how far you rise, that's just how far you will ultimately get your comeuppance. So to summarize their criticism of her, they're angry for two reasons. One, they think she's too hard on corporate Democrats and two, they don't like that she accused Joe Crowley of mounting a third party bid against her. But the problem is, it's just a fact that he's mounting a third-party bid against her. The working party's family endorsed him over her, which I don't know why they would call themselves the working family's party if they endorse someone who's in favor of an elitist family, so I don't get why they do that, so that kind of shows you just how progressive this organization really is, but nonetheless, they endorsed him, and he's on the ballot under their banner. And he can take steps to get himself off of the ballot. He can register to vote in his home state of Virginia, but he hasn't done that. And in fact, Joe Lieberman has capitalized on this situation and actually endorsed Joe Crowley, saying individuals in New York 14 should vote for Crowley on the working families ticket over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, because she had the audacity to point that out, well, they're attacking her for it, and they're saying, cool it. And um, Bill Pascrell said she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about if she's saying he's trying to mount a third-party bid against her. He's on the fucking ballot, Bill. He's not doing anything to take his name off of said ballot. Therefore, he's being a sore loser, and he's mounting a third-party bid against her. See, they're allowed to do whatever they want to progressives, treat us as poorly as they want to, but the minute we speak out, all of a sudden, they claim to be the victims. Oh, you called out me doing something dirty? 
Well, why are you attacking me? Now I'm the victim. I mean, this is what Democrats have been doing, and they're not going to stop anytime soon. But to be honest, even though these are completely unreasonable accusations to lob against Alexandria, that she's attacking them, one that just hasn't been the case, other representatives decided to criticize her maturity level, literally. I mean, it doesn't get more elitist and condescending than that. But here's what else they said. Alcee Hastings added, you come up here and you're going to be buddy buddy with all the folks or you're going to make them do certain things that ain't happening okay once an election is over you win why are you still angry said representative Lacey clay i think it's a lack of maturity on her part and a lack of political acumen for her to be that petty we as democrats better figure out who the real enemy is and it's not each other representative john larson a former chairman of the house democratic caucus was more gentle though he still lamented the tone of the post-primary debate attributing it to inexperience on the part of ocasio cortez when it comes to courtesy and decency and especially the way, the class way, in which Joe Crowley has conducted himself in every overture that he's made, I think she would be wise to rethink some of the things that she's saying, he said. Separately, a number of Democrats are also going after Ocasio-Cortez for her decision to endorse a handful of progressive candidates challenging sitting Democratic lawmakers, a list that includes Clay and representatives Michael Capuano, Stephanie Murphy, Adam Smith, as well as Senator Tom Carper. So the reason why individuals like Lacey Clay don't like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is because after she won, what did she do? She gave a national platform to Lacey Clay's progressive opponent, Cori Bush, who is immeasurably more progressive on every single issue than Lacey Clay. So because she dared to endorse his opponent, he's criticizing her maturity level. Go fuck yourself. Lacey Clay, you don't get to condescendingly criticize her maturity level because you don't like that she endorsed your opponent. Understand that this is a double standard. They can endorse corporate Democrats all day long, but the minute someone dares to endorse a progressive, they become unraveled. They play the victim. And it's the most absurd thing ever. Corporate Democrats, they're held to one standard, and progressives are held to a completely higher standard. They're allowed to endorse their own corporate colleagues, but we're not allowed to endorse our own progressive colleagues. Go fuck yourself. We're going to do it whether you like it or not. And really, there should be more endorsements. Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Raul Grijalva, they should all be coming out in droves to endorse progressive Democrats, justice Democrats, members running in brand new Congress, but they're not. They're being silent. And that's something that progressives tolerate when really we should expect better from our elected progressive leaders. But the fact that they have the nerve to criticize someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for endorsing other progressives is absolutely nauseating to me. And another point that they make is that, look, we're not the real enemy, Alexandria. The real enemy it's the Republicans. Actually, yes, that's true. They're the Republicans. The, the Republicans are the enemy. But you see, you enable Republicans. You make Republican electoral victories possible. We have this rogue party who isn't championing any idea that's popular at all. In fact, what they're doing is overwhelmingly unpopular. The tax bill that they just passed, it has an approval rating of what, 36%? And that's up from last year. So how can you not defeat this almost parody of itself 
version of the Republican Party that's as rogue and tyrannical as it's ever been. Furthermore, the destruction caused by Republicans... Well, you're complicit in that because what do you corporate Democrats do? You abandoned your base. So you're absolutely complicit in the destruction caused by the Republican Party. So they have the nerve, really, to criticize Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Every single one of them should lose their jobs. It's because of them that Donald Trump is president. It's because of them that the party lost a thousand seats in state legislatures across the country. You've ruined this country with your complicity of allowing Republicans to win, and now you have the nerve to speak out against someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This party is a joke. To nobody's surprise, the Bernie bro myth has returned. And since it's no longer applicable to Bernie Sanders himself, since statistically it's, <laughs> it's not applicable since Bernie Sanders is not just popular among straight white males, he's popular among women, among people of color. Well, now this same tired Bernie bro myth argument is being applied to individuals like Cynthia Nixon. So this is what CNN's Harriet Anten argues when talking about polling results between Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. Cuomo is leading across pretty much all demographic groups, but he's particularly strong among African Americans. Although no crosstab of black voters was available in the Quinnipiac poll, an earlier Siena College poll put Cuomo's margin over Nixon among black voters at 74 to 17%. His advantage among black voters is no fluke. When Ocasio-Cortez was cruising district-wide, she was weak in black neighborhoods. She was able to win in large part because of her strength in areas with larger white populations. Progressive Daniel Biss lost the Illinois gubernatorial primary earlier this year, at least partially because he ran weak in the black neighborhoods of Chicago. In 2016, Senator Bernie Sanders, a Vermont independent who caucuses with Democrats, could never quite overcome Hillary Clinton's connection with black voters. She won them in New York by 50 points, for example. Even for Cuomo, a black base is nothing new. When he beat Teach Out four years ago, he did best in areas that were predominantly black. Why are progressive insurgents struggling with black voters? Black Democrats are more likely to consider themselves moderate or conservative than other Democrats. They also are more likely to identify as Democrats instead of independents who lean Democratic. That is, they are far more comfortable with more moderate Democrats in the establishment than other Democrats are, especially whites. Now, obviously, it's possible for progressive challengers to win a primary even with this difficulty, see Ocasio-Cortez, but until candidates like Nixon and Sanders solve their black voter problem, they're going to be limited in their electoral victories. Now, the underlying implication of this article isn't subtle at all. What he's saying here is that, you know, if black voters self-identify as more moderate or conservative and progressives clearly aren't able to reach black voters in a way that progressives would make themselves more electable is if they become more moderate. So if they stop being progressive, that'll make progressivism in general more marketable to black voters. But if you take progressivism away from the progressive candidates, then you have nothing left. But this assumption here 
It's incredibly misleading for a number of reasons. Now, I will say that he is correct in that progressives statistically do have a more difficult time reaching black voters, but he's overstating the finding of this specific survey that he cites here because, for starters, the sample size of this survey is relatively small. So with a sample size of 745 respondents, black voters only account for 9% of this study, meaning he's basing the entire premise of this argument off of 67 black voters, which just isn't a large enough sample to draw such a big conclusion from. Now, additionally, there are other issues that I have with the methodology of this particular survey that he cites. Wealthier people with an income of $100,000 or more per year are overrepresented in this sample. So they account for 39% or about 290 people. Now, why is that a problem? Well, the goal for these polls is to reproduce a sample that largely mirrors the voting population who they're trying to poll. Generally speaking, most American households can't afford a $500 emergency expense. And even though the median income in New York is higher than the national average, it's no surprise that most mostly wealthy people would opt for the more moderate candidate. I mean, if you stack this survey with a bunch of wealthy people, 39% wealthy people, then obviously, if you give them the choice between a progressive and a moderate candidate, they're going to opt for the moderate. So the results are skewed in favor of the moderate to begin with because of how many wealthy people you have in this particular survey. So that's another issue that I had with the methodology of this survey and in general with the argument itself. Now, I don't know the breakdown of wealthy black voters, but it's just, it's problematic. The methodology is questionable to say the least. Now, the second problem that I have with Harry's argument is that he is implying that the only way to appeal to black voters who self-identify as moderate is to become more moderate. However, what he's not telling you is that most voters identify as conservative or moderate. In 2016, Gallup found that only 25% of the country self-identifies as liberal, whereas 36% identify as conservative. Now, that would be a compelling argument if you just stop there and you take voters at their word that if they say they're conservative or moderate, that they really are conservative or moderate. The problem is that when you disaggregate the policies from political identities, you'll see that how somebody self-identifies isn't the best gauge of how liberal, conservative, or moderate they really are. Because when you go issue by issue, most Americans are overwhelmingly progressive. When you look at Medicare for All, free college, a jobs guarantee, marijuana legalization, abortion, marriage equality, voters all support these issues overwhelmingly in spite of the fact that most people identify as either conservative or moderate. So, to simply say, well, you know, these black voters, they say they're more moderate or conservative, so you need to be more politically moderate or conservative. Well, that's misleading because that might not mean that they'd support traditionally conservative or moderate policies because like all voters, they might just think that they're moderate. But if you ask them how they feel about progressive policy issues, 
they might surprise you and they might actually support it. In fact, I'd argue that they're more likely to support those issues given the fact that these issues are overwhelmingly popular. Now, finally, the last problem that I had with this article is that even if Bernie Sanders did struggle to reach black voters in 2016, which he did, Harry is making this argument while simultaneously disregarding a Harvard-Harris survey from 2017, which actually found that Bernie Sanders' approval rating was the highest among black voters at 73%. That's a 21-point difference compared to whites. Now, in January of 2018, a Quinnipiac poll found that the difference between white and black voters when it came to Bernie's favorability was even higher. In this poll, 70% of black voters had a favorable view of Bernie Sanders, which is 27 points higher than it is among whites. Now, why is that the case? Well, all that we can do is speculate, but it seems as though even if Bernie Sanders could have improved his outreach to black voters, well, part of the problem was that maybe... They just didn't know who he was. Back in 2016, he didn't have the name recognition that Hillary Clinton had. So, of course, that's going to give him a disadvantage. But now that everyone knows who he is and he's the most popular politician in the country, he has the highest approval rating among black voters. So, if you're basing this argument on polling, why would CNN use this one poll with a questionable methodology and use that to extrapolate and extend this now debunked Bernie bro myth to progressive women like Cynthia Nixon and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Well, to me, I think it's because this is a strategy for them. Back in 2016, then-Labor Secretary and now-DNC Chairman Tom Perez told Hillary Clinton's team that a way to counter the inconvenient fact that Bernie Sanders was just more popular among millennials was to turn him off to minorities by painting him as the candidate that only appeals to whites, to white millennials specifically. And even though progressive policies resonate with all demographics, this Bernie bro myth was an effective way to smear Bernie Sanders, and it's still being used because it is, in fact, an effective strategy that turns people off to progressives. But look, maybe it's the case that this journalist wasn't applying this Bernie bro myth to Cynthia Nixon specifically to smear her, even if this is a tactic used by the Democratic Party establishment and was a strategy cooked up by Tom Perez in order to smear progressives. Maybe it's the case that he just unwittingly did the establishment's bidding by using a tactic that they use to smear progressives. All I can do really is speculate about his motives, but it is a bit curious that in an article that talks about aggregate polling between Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon, the title of this article centers around one poll that shows Cynthia Nixon performing poorly among black Democrats. It's a bit curious. So, if I had to speculate against his motives here, it seems as though he's trying to smear her and he's not being an honest actor here. But look, we all know that the Bernie bro myth is something that really resonates with more centrist, neoliberal-minded Democratic Party voters. So it's why they continue to use it, even if now, when you look at polling data, those guys don't have a leg to stand on. They don't have an argument anymore. Now, generally speaking, yes, it's still the case that progressive up-and-comers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cynthia Nixon are struggling among blacks based on what limited polls we've seen and exit polls from the uh, race on June 26th in New York 14. But if Bernie was struggling to reach black voters because of his lack of name recognition, maybe it's the case that Alexandria and Cynthia are also struggling because of their lack of name recognition. Even if she is 
um, an actress, that doesn't necessarily mean that voters will know her political leanings. They might not necessarily know that she's progressive, because when I first heard of Cynthia Nixon, I didn't know if she was just another elitist Hollywood actress who was getting into politics for self-serving reasons. But now we all know that she's the real deal. So maybe it's the case that they have the same assumption that I had about Cynthia Nixon. The problem is that you can't just generalize and say that progressive policies only apply to white males because that's just not true. We know with the popularity of Bernie Sanders that these policies are extremely popular among people of color. So to continue to parrot this false narrative from the establishment, it's really harmful. It's propaganda. So, since progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are extremely popular right now, right-wingers are doing everything they possibly can to smear and discredit her because, obviously, the popular policy ideas that she's espousing, well, that threatens the electoral viability of Republicans. It also threatens their worldview. So, Fox News has kind of been doing this a lot lately. They've been trying to smear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the more simpler things they've been doing to try to discredit her is just airing her speeches, which you're actually helping her, so thank you, Fox. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to basically explain to millennials who don't watch Fox News that you shouldn't be excited about her because she is overwhelmingly popular among millennials. You shouldn't be excited about her because really she's stupid. She's dumb. That's basically their argument. Now, in order to make their argument more credible, they brought on another millennial in order to bash Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that's really what Fox has been doing for a while now. If you want someone to condemn Black Lives Matter, who better than someone who's black? If you want to know why you should be against the gay rights, who better to explain away LGBT equality than someone from the gay community? So they tried to replicate that same strategy here and brought on a millennial to smear another millennial. Now I'm going to show you a series of clips and you're probably going to get the same sense that I did while watching that there wasn't really an underlying thesis or hypothesis that they wanted to put forward about Alexandria, they just showed various clips and shit on her in every conceivable way they possibly could. So in this first clip, this is uh, Tommy Lauren's general take on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Socialist millennial Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hitting the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders this week after shocking the political establishment and taking out Pelosi's protege. But is she all sizzle and no steak? Here's what she said when questioned on Israeli-Palestinian relations. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What did oh. you mean by that? Oh, um, I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements that are increasing in, in some of these areas and, and places where, um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty in access to uh, their housing and homes. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. That's for sure. <laughs> Joining me now, Fox News contributor Tommy Lair. Now, Tommy, you and I have been in situations where I'm sure we don't really know exactly what we're talking about, but we're able to fudge it and we're, we can wing it and at least pretend to kind of have a semblance of knowledge about the subject. You never throw your hands up and you say, I'm not an expert. 
She's also running for office, so that makes it a little bit more disturbing. But Jesse, yeah. I gotta tell you, I used to love it when Hillary Clinton would come on TV because I thought that it would make it so much easier for us in November and in 2020, but I'm over Hillary. This is my new girl. I love to see her on TV. I think it's hilarious. I do too. Uh, I think I'm gonna donate to her campaign because I want her to go as far as possible in the Democratic Party. Maybe she could run on, on Biden's ticket. Maybe it could be Biden-Cortez. I like the sound of that. I like the sound of it, too. But, you know, she's also a Democratic Socialist, and she's going to be campaigning with Bernie Sanders. You know, the young people are supposed to love socialism, but also young people love reality TV. So, Jesse, I have an idea. Yeah. Why don't we take Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, why don't we drop them into the socialist nation of their choice and see how long they last? <laughs> I love that idea. So the explicit assumption here is that because she admitted that she's not an expert on Israel-Palestine, well, she must be dumb. And she's dumb specifically because, as he puts it, you know, um, she didn't fudge it. Because what did Jesse Waters say? You know, you and I have been in situations, Tommy, where I'm not sure we uh, were, I'm sure we don't really know exactly what we're talking about, but we're able to fudge it and we can wing it and pretend to kind of have a semblance of knowledge about the subject, you never throw your hands up and say you're not an expert. Except that's exactly what you do if you don't know about a particular subject. There's so many topics with regard to policy and international affairs and Middle East and North African geopolitics that it's impossible for any one person to know everything about every single issue ever. But here we had this Freudian slip from Jesse Waters here where he admits, look, I'm a bullshitter. We can wing it and at least pretend to kind of have a semblance of knowledge about the subject. If I don't know something, I'm going to keep talking and I'm going to pretend as if I know something. And you're never going to see me admitting that we've reached the limits of my knowledge. I'm knowledgeable about everything, or at least I'm going to pretend like I know everything. And because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has the nerve to admit that she's not an expert on this particular policy, well, she must be dumb. She must be stupid because she's not willing to bullshit people like me. Well, how does that help you? Because you're admitting that you're a bullshitter and she's admitting that she's more honest. That's inherently more appealing. I'll take someone who is more honest and who's willing to admit that they don't know about a particular issue than someone who's just going to bullshit me. Because odds are, nine times out of ten, you're going to know if someone is pissing on your leg and trying to tell you it's raining. You're going to know that they're full of shit. And unfortunately for individuals like Jesse Waters and Tommy Lahren, they're full of shit, I think, most of the time. Now, I want to talk about the most ridiculous part of this entire exchange here, where Tommy Lahren actually compares Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Hillary Clinton. She states here, Jesse, I gotta tell you, I used to love it when Hillary Clinton would come on TV because I thought it would make it so much easier for us in November and in 2020, but I'm over Hillary. This is my new girl. I love to see her on TV. I think it's hilarious. Now, what Tommy Lahren is speaking to is the fact that Hillary Clinton would start at a certain popularity level and... Since nobody liked her, the more she would speak, the more her popularity level would drop. Now, when it comes to progressives like Bernie Sanders, nobody really knew who he was, but the more he spoke in 2016, we saw the more popular he became. And that's also true for someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. If you honestly think that people hearing more of her policy ideas is going to turn them off, 
Well, I've got really bad news for you. The policies she's talking about are overwhelmingly popular. So it would actually behoove right-wing propagandists such as yourselves to hide her away from the public, not let her message get out because odds are it's probably going to resonate with most Americans. But instead, they're making our jobs easy by elevating her progressive policy issues to a national platform. And this is what Sean Hannity did the day after she was elected. He tried to fearmonger about her and show us how how scary her policy ideas were, but instead he ended up advertising her policy ideas for all of us. And Waters kind of echoed that sentiment that, yeah, she's great for Republicans because she's going to make our jobs easier. He said, I think I'm going to donate to her campaign because I want her to go as far as possible in the Democratic Party. No, you don't. <laughs> I want you to think that, but if she is basically the face of the Democratic Party, that's not good for right-wingers because the one thing that defeats right-wing populism, the one thing that defeats a right-wing demagogue like Donald Trump, is left-wing populism. You see this around the world. But they think that her being the face of Democrats or being increasingly popular is actually bad for the left. And it just shows you how out of touch they are with the general population. Now, Tommy Lahren states, young people love socialism, but young people also love reality TV. So Jesse, I have an idea. Why don't we take Bernie and Alexandria, drop them off in the socialist nation of their choice, and see how long they last? Now, she kind of fucked up her talking point there, because if you're talking about other socialist nations, of course you pivot to Venezuela. You say, let's drop them off in Venezuela, but she didn't. She gave us the option. So if you tell Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, hey, we're going to film you. Pick a socialist nation of your choice. Can you guess what they're going to say? Norway, Denmark, Sweden. Finland, Scandinavian countries are what they're going to say. So she messed up there. And what she's also trying to do is denigrate her own generation. The Fox News viewer, the average Fox News viewer is what, over 70? So she's trying to make it seem like, oh, well, you know, since millennials are so dumb and they only care about things like reality television, let's create a reality television show in order to reach them to show them just how bad socialism really is. But the problem about this generalization about millennials is that she's also a millennial. So in suggesting that our generation, you know, they're just dumb, they're superficial, they're simple-minded, you're also lumping yourself in that category, genius, so it shows just how dumb you are specifically because you're saying oh millennials are dumb people in my generation are dumb you're part of that generation numbnuts so <laughs> what are you trying to do if you want people to take you more seriously shouldn't you say look i'm a millennial and you should take me seriously instead she's saying all of my generation are stupid that's what she's saying. Now, throughout this particular exchange, I expected them to respond specifically to Alexandria's comments on Israel because they said that they disagree with her. So naturally, you'd expect them to present a counterargument of their own, but they didn't even really touch on her comments. But they weren't done shitting on Ocasio-Cortez just yet because they brought up another seemingly random thing to attack her for. Let's hear what her uh, opinion was on direct action in the streets. Roll it. We have to have a rapid response. And I think every day that we go on, especially a day when something that heinous happens, uh, we have to occupy all of it. We need to occupy every airport. We need to occupy every border. We need to occupy every ICE office. I mean, she doesn't understand about the Israeli occupation, but she wants to occupy everything in America. I, I don't think this tactic is effective, do you? 
I think it gets some people riled up, which of course it has because she's been somewhat successful. But yeah. I'll tell you that she also said she was going to take a lot of her policy direction from activists. And I have a question for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Which activists? Is it going to be the activists that riot, loot, and burn their local businesses? Or is it the activists that march around in the streets with reproductive organs on their head? I mean, which <laughs> activists is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going to be taking direction from from her policy? Because as we know, she really doesn't have a lot of policy experience. This isn't her strong suit. So I'm wondering where she's going to get it from. Yeah, I don't think she knows. Maybe she can get it at Bernie's house. So the first thing I've got to touch on is um, when Tommy Lahren states she doesn't really have a lot of policy experience. This isn't her strong suit. Where's your experience, Tommy? Bloviating about conservatism and using right-wing talking points that are tired and debunked doesn't make you an expert either. So why are you more qualified to speak on policy than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Because Fox News hired you because you worked for Glenn Beck that somehow gives you more authority to speak on these issues? Of course it doesn't. Anyone can have their own ideas about policy. It doesn't matter what your background is. So to try to discredit her by saying she's not really qualified to talk about policy is really an elitist argument to make. And she also criticized Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for saying that she's going to take her cue really from um, activists. She's going to take her policy direction from activists. And then she went on to imply that left-wing grassroots activists are by and large radical. But that's... That's not what she's talking about. And I think that you know what she's talking about. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says she's going to take policy direction from grassroots activists, she's talking about minimum wage workers who work for retail chains and fast food restaurants, the fight for 15. She's talking about Black Lives Matter and those activists who are pushing for criminal justice reform. She's talking about the teachers who were striking in states like West Virginia for better wages. That's what she's talking about. And really, if you want to talk about radicalism, we should be talking about radicalism on the right because it's your side who's marching with tiki torches last year saying Jews will not replace us. It's your side who ran over grassroots activists with the car. So if you really want to play this game where you talk about which side is more radical, which side is more violent, you're going to lose that game. But we finally reached the end of this segment where they decided to shit on her for one last thing and uh here's what they said let's listen to her take on capitalism and the unemployment rate this one's my favorite roll it we look at these figures and we say oh unemployment is low everything is fine right well unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs Unemployment is low because people are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I do think that right now when we have this no-holds-barred, Wild West hyper-capitalism, what that means is profit at any cost. Capitalism has not always existed in the world, and it will not always exist in the world. Okay, I mean, I hate to fact check her. Uh, everyone has two jobs. Uh, the people with two jobs, and it's his lowest rate in about 11 years. But that's not even how the jobless numbers go down. That's not how the unemployment rate works. It's down because people are working. More Americans are working. I don't think she gets it. 
She doesn't get it as all, at all, but it just keeps getting better and better every time she opens her mouth, like I said. I think it's wonderful. It's always interesting to watch a train wreck. But as I said <laughs> earlier, she loves socialism so much, she doesn't think that capitalism is going to be around forever. So let's drop her in Venezuela. Let's have her live there. Let's just give her six months. Let's give her six months in Venezuela and see how well she likes six it. I would like months. to document I wouldn't, it. I, I would wouldn't also give her like six weeks. There. I wouldn't give her six weeks. You know what she reminds me of, Tommy? You remember when I used to go out and do those street interviews and talk to people and they were just totally clueless? She reminds me of a guest on Waters World. But my favorite was we have this wild, wild west capitalism. What is she talking about? It's like the most regulated economy of all time. I mean, Trump's kind of slashed those regulations, but I mean, what world is she living in? Well, not this world, uh, and she obviously doesn't understand that capitalism is what allows us to flourish as a nation. It's what allows her to do things that she does day in and day out, and the young people that are listening to her, I hope that they understand that as well. But I think what she's trying to do is throw out flashy words like socialism because <laughs> she thinks all the young people are going to flock to her because they flock to Bernie. But I think people are getting smarter, at least I would hope so. Not if they're watching Fox News. So <laughs> this is what they touch on from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm going to read to you a quote from Alexandria. Unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. Unemployment is low because people are working 60 to 70 hours per week. Now, I'll admit here, I don't think she explained that very well, but judging by what she said in the past about this particular issue, it seems as if the point she was trying to convey is that unemployment isn't really a good way to gauge how well the working class is doing. Because even if unemployment is low, well, more people are working for lower wage companies, lower wage jobs. More low wage jobs are available. So people are having to work two, three jobs in some instances just to make ends meet. So just because unemployment is low, that, that doesn't automatically mean that people from the working class aren't struggling because they still are. But of course, we can't expect two millionaires who are out of touch in that DC bubble to grasp that fact because they're in their own elitist bubble and they don't know what ordinary working class people deal with. However, since she didn't word her answer in that way, that gave these two smear merchants an opportunity to try to discredit what she was saying, but they did finally get around to their go-to argument, Venezuela. So um, what Tommy Laren states is drop her in Venezuela and see how long she lasts. So that's what she should have said when she was talking about the reality show beforehand, because if you give us, give us the option to choose which socialist country we're going to live in, we're not going to pick Venezuela, Tommy. We're going to pick somewhere like Denmark. <laughs> Now, Waters decided to shit on her, saying my favorite comment from her is, we have this wild, wild west capitalism. What is she talking about? We have the most regulated economy of all time. I mean, Trump's kind of slashed those regulations, but what world is she living in? Now, I love that he stopped and kind of corrected himself there, because as he was talking about just how regulated our economy is, well, even a bullshitter like him couldn't keep a straight face while saying, you know, we live in the most regulated economy ever as Donald Trump deregulates everything. But when he asks the question, you know, what world is she living in? She's living in a world where we've commodified basically every fucking thing imaginable. Things that shouldn't have a profit motive that now do have a profit motive. A world where health insurance companies profit off of sick people. Where our economy thrives on constant war. Where defense stocks 
plummet at the prospect of peace between the United States and North Korea, where her education secretary wants to destroy and defund public education so she can push for charter schools so her and her rich friends can get super rich, even more rich than they already are off of that. But the thing about this is that unless someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaks with the utmost specificity on every single issue ever, well, they're going to try to attack her for it. They're going to find every little thing to nitpick about her because they know she poses a threat. That's why I'm not really all that mad because the fact that they're dedicating so much attention to her shows that deep down they know that she's a threat. And the irony is that in trying to portray Alexandria as this naive, dim-witted millennial who doesn't know much, they ended up kind of showing just how stupid they are in actuality. So I'm glad that they're dedicating this much attention to her because it shows we've got them scared and that's a good position to have your opponents in. On a recent episode of The View, the subject of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and socialism came up and Meghan McCain basically lost her mind over it. So... This is what happened when they were talking about AOC. We were talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she's one of the reasons that what is now being called democratic socialists are rising stars in the party. But I, I'm a little concerned about that because I, this was my problem with Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. If you're a socialist, tell me that. Mm -hmm. Don't say that you're a Democrat because you clearly don't, we don't have the same... Uh, ideas of what should be happening if you are a Democrat. I so I, I wonder uh, if this is now a splinter group, um, if anybody's discussed the difference between socialism and democratic uh, socialism. Well, so, I think it was, I don't isn't know. it more like, isn't democratic socialism very close to liberalism? I mean, no. I mean, well, think about it for a second. Medicare, Social Security, uh, well, garbage collection, the post office, the library. I agree with you. I, that's all well, I agree with you because we, we had her on First the show all, and I asked her this question about what do you mean by being a democratic socialist? And she platform. She says Medicare for all. Good. Uh, fully funded public schools and universities. Love it. Paid family and sick leave. Good. Justice system reform, immigration justice, yeah. infrastructural overhaul, clean campaign finance, an economy of peace, housing as a human right. Well, I don't know. No, it's a really well, successful well, country. Explode, which, by the way, I hope Democrats do run a democratic socialist. Do you hope which is that just, we win? Do we, do we uh, the Democrats no, because I think you'll Trump? lose spectacularly, and then I will look forward to election night when I finally get to tell everybody I told you so. If you end up running a radical problem with socialism, in the words of Margaret Thatcher, at a certain point you run out of spending other people's money. Venezuela, one. Now, the average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds because they're starving to death. 90% of the country like is living in poverty. I think she's talking more about Scandinavia than Venezuela. I, but I'm sorry. I need, this is what I need from her. Name one country that socialism has ever worked. And also, every, every democratic socialist Copenhagen, who is going um, on TV Denmark, saying that it's good needs Norway, to start paying 90% in taxes. Iceland. On your tax form. No, on your tax form. On your 
your tax form, I think you should start paying the amount of taxes that every socialist in this country thinks you need to. Because if you think the government is so good at okay. spending money, look at the VA. Oh, no, 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 because about, it is dangerous. It is dangerous. I just told you several countries what that do it. Countries? It it is, I'm sorry. Hold yeah. on a minute. Hold on. Everybody, everybody. God bless you all. I, I hate that. I know you hate them, but then everybody stop talking over each other, and I won't hit the bell. The population of 300,000 people in any way, in no way can be related in any way comparably to the United States of America. I'm sorry. If you think it's good, then you need to be paying the amount of taxes. Let her get her thing and go ahead. So, you're saying you run out of people's money, tax other people's, Margaret other people's money, Margaret Thatcher. Okay. I didn't say that. Chief. They have just given this enormous tax break to the wealthy in this country. Mm -hmm. that, that tax break doesn't have to be so generous to those really rich people, does it? Because if you don't give that money to them, what happens to that money? Better schools, I better think, post office, I'm sorry, better garbage pickup, better Is a Listen, great run business. The VA. I'm sorry. Comparing the United States of America to a small country in Europe Can is I delusional. And I'm sorry. Some of us do not want socialism to be normalized okay. in this country. I am an example. Seventy percent. I don't even know what to say to warrant that type of reaction to the idea of socialism shows that Meghan McCain really is uninformed because she doesn't understand what socialism is and everything she said about it. It's clear. No idea. Anything that Joy Behar said flew right over her head or she just disregarded it. She didn't care. She wasn't interested in having a genuine constructive conversation about socialism. She just wanted to rant. And, you know, Joy Behar really was the voice of reason. And I'm really 50-50 on Joy Behar. Sometimes she says things that are awful, like we just have to forget about the Iraq war and Democrats who voted for it and give them a pass. And other times she'll do a really good job defending Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she did a great job here. But first, before I get to Meghan McCain, I can't not touch on Whoopi Goldberg because she said this. This was my problem with Bernie Sanders. If you're a socialist, tell me that. Don't say that you're a Democrat because you clearly don't. We don't have the same ideas of what should be happening if you're a Democrat. Fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so, if you disagree with Bernie Sanders, who has a favorable favorability rating among Democrats at, what, 80%? If you disagree with him and his ideas, you're just disagreeing with populist policies. Now, as one of the hosts listed off all the, the different ideas that Bernie and Alexandria are in favor of, Joy Behar said, yeah, I'm in favor of it. Medicare for all? Sign me up. Tuition-free public colleges and universities? Sign me up. So if you're not in favor of that, Whoopi, then I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You're just not progressive or liberal. You're conservative or a moderate at a minimum. So I, I honestly don't get the point that she was trying to make there. I don't think she was super articulate, but at the same time, even if I had to fill in the blanks and try to see what point she was trying to make, it still makes no fucking sense. So Whoopi, 
get it together because she's been such a disappointment lately. Now, Megan states, on the subject of socialism, this makes my head explode, which by the way, I hope Democrats do run a democratic socialist because I think they'll lose spectacularly. Then we'll look forward to election night when I finally get to tell everyone I told you so. Now, we've also heard this from Fox News. Oh, I hope that, you know, Democrats make Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the poster child of the party because then they're going to lose. Well, be careful what you wish for, Republicans, because if she were the face of the party, Republicans wouldn't stand a chance. Why? Because when you look at her policy platform, you'll see that all the ideas she is espousing and vocally championing are overwhelmingly popular. Medicare for all, more than 60% favorability, tuition-free public colleges and universities. I think it's what, 59%? I mean, these are things that are popular. So to say that you want her to be the face of the Democratic Party shows that you don't really know what's in the best interest of right-wingers. Now, she also brought up Venezuela. Surprise, surprise. But Joy Behar actually chimed in and said she's talking more about Scandinavia. And Meghan McCain said, um, this is what I need from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Name one country where socialism has ever worked. And Joy Behar named four. She said Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland. And she didn't respond to it. She just continued to tune her out and rant. Well, I mean, <laughs> it makes your head explode, but you need to listen if you clearly, I mean, if, if the idea of socialism makes your head explode, then clearly you're uninformed. So by listening to Joy Behar, you might actually learn a thing or two because what she's saying right here is representative of the political philosophy of people like Alexandra and Bernie. But she, honestly, it, it was clear that Meghan McCain wasn't interested in learning. She just wanted to rant and go off on this idea of socialism. And someone with a net worth of $4 million who has everything she has, who has a show because she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth because of who her dad is, she can't possibly fathom why something like socialism or just progressive policies in general, forget the isms, she can't fathom why something like Medicare for All or free public college is popular among normal working class Americans. It's because, Megan, most of us weren't born with silver spoons in our mouths. We don't have rich dads. We don't have rich parents who can pay for our health care or college. We have to do that ourselves. And she made an argument that she thought was just the best argument ever. She got us. She states, anyone who thinks socialism is good needs to start paying 90% in tax. If you think that socialism is great, if you think that big government is so great, look at the VA. I literally facepalmed when she said this because it is not a great argument in spite of what she might believe. It's a stupid fucking argument because what individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are proposing is not to raise taxes on working class Americans with the exception of slightly raising taxes to pay for Medicare for all, which would be okay since they'll still have more money in their pocket, they'll net gain money since they won't have to pay for their monthly premium. But when we talk about raising taxes, we're not talking about raising taxes on the working class. We're talking about raising taxes on you, Meghan McCain. Yes, millionaires and billionaires need to pay more money, but to simply reduce 
paying for progressive policies to tax increases, that's an oversimplification because what progressives are also talking about, which nobody wants to acknowledge, is we're talking about reprioritizing the budget. Rather than spending 700 fucking billion dollars on the military, maybe we reallocate some of those funds into social safety net programs. And I'm sorry, but I'm not going to shed a tear for individuals who are grotesquely rich like Jeff Bezos. He doesn't need to have more than $100 billion. I think that if we taxed him at 90%, like you said, he'll be okay. So it comes down to a reprioritization of our tax dollars. And Joy Behar brought up a really great point. She said, look, we just gave the wealthy a tax cut. And if we didn't do that, we could have used that money to strengthen our our social safety net. Yeah, that's what we've been saying. So I do want to give credit to Joy Behar because I've been critical of her before, but I think that she did a really exceptional job here at defending Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's position on these policies. But it's frustrating that Meghan McCain refused to listen or heard what she said, but it just went in one ear and out the other. So frustrating because if you want to make your point, if you want to bring up these idiotic right-wing talking points, then you at least need to listen to when someone actually addresses your concerns, but she didn't do that. And other things she said, comparing America to a small country in Europe is delusional. Why? So it's delusional to say, well, since a small European country can have Medicare for all or pay for college for all of their citizens... America can't do that. America can't do what a small European country does. Now, the general argument is, well, look, the, the population is smaller, so it's easy to distribute social welfare programs because it's just a smaller population. But population size doesn't matter because the bigger the population, the more revenue and tax dollars you bring in. So population size itself doesn't matter. It's not even a factor. The point that Meghan McCain misses is that every government is going to collect tax dollars from its citizens. Now, the question is, what do you do with that money? As usual, governments will pay for roads. They'll build bridges. But other things that they do is sometimes, like our country, they'll wage war. When waging a war is not a great way to spend our tax dollars. In fact, it's an awful way to spend our tax dollars. I'm not giving the government my money every single month because I want them to continue waging unnecessary wars that are never ending so the military industrial complex can continue to keep their stocks high. I want that money that I'm giving to the government to pay for things that will help Americans. They always talk about free stuff, free stuff, free stuff. It's not free. We're paying for it. We just want our tax dollars to pay for things that actually help Americans, that save lives. But Meghan McCain doesn't get that because she has been brainwashed. She has drunk the right-wing Republican Kool-Aid. And every talking point that she hears from the right, it's it's not like it resonates with her. She just has this visceral response to it that she has to accept it as legitimate because that's what's always been legitimate to her. It's what her father has promoted. And she has this visceral response when she hears about socialism because she has bought into propaganda. She has been raised learning that socialism is bad and capitalism is good. She never had a nuanced thought about socialism. And the reason why we're getting this type of reaction from her and others, really, is because for the first time ever, they're being forced to think about the problems inherent with capitalism. They're being forced to think about socialism in a more nuanced way and not just have this knee-jerk response to it. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. I mean, they're still trying, but it's getting a lot more 
difficult for them to hold that position. It's it's really getting unpalatable at this point. So, I mean, if she really wanted to learn about socialism and if she didn't want her head to explode at the thought of someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that they're a democratic socialist, it would behoove her to listen to individuals like Joy, Joy Behar, who did a pretty good job explaining Alexandria and Bernie's position, but she didn't do that. She just yelled like a crazy person. Neoconservative warmonger and national security advisor John Bolton has been one of the loudest proponents of regime change in Iran. In fact, just last summer, he indicated that he'd like to be celebrating the invasion of Iran in Tehran by 2019. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. That lunatic is advising the president on national security issues, and John Bolton has been given a lot of ammunition by Donald Trump because, as we all know, Donald Trump made this unhinged threat to Iran via Twitter. Now, what Donald Trump was responding to, it didn't really warrant that type of response at all. So, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani states, Don't play with the lion's tail or you will regret it. President Rouhani cautioned U.S. President Donald Trump addressing a meeting attended by the Iranian representatives in foreign countries. America should know that peace with Iran is the mother of all peace and war with Iran is the mother of all wars. Now, because of that last response, Donald Trump took it as a direct threat. And he responded with this caps lock rant against them. To Iranian President Rouhani, never ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious. Now, of course, this tweet came after he said the following about President Obama in 2013. Remember what I previously said, Obama will someday attack Iran in order to show how tough he is. So obviously, Donald Trump can't stop contradicting himself and implicit in his threat, embedded in that deranged lunacy condensed in a tweet, is the threat of nuclear annihilation. Because what is he saying here? You'll suffer the consequences, the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered. What does that imply? He's talking about nuclear annihilation. Because if you want a hot war with Iran, you're not just going to get in their clean house and then leave the next day. It's going to be a very bloody, disastrous battle. So if you're really threatening them and saying they're going to experience or suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before, that's a threat of nuclear annihilation. And when he goes on these deranged rants like this, you know that individuals like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton are probably coming in their pants with excitement after seeing that, you know, they're one step closer to getting him to want to go to war with Iran. Now, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javid Zarif responded, I probably butchered that, but he responded on Twitter, of course, because that's how you conduct diplomacy nowadays, is via Twitter. But he states, 
Color us unimpressed. The world heard even harsher bluster a few months ago, and Iranians have heard them, albeit more civilized ones, for 40 years. We've been around for millennia and seen fall of empires, including our own, which lasted more than the life of some countries. Be cautious. So take it as you will, that's an escalation. It's a slight escalation, but it's an escalation nonetheless, when right now we need to diffuse the situation. So... John Bolton, did he kind of step in and try to defuse the situation? Of course he didn't. He decided to fan the flames further, saying, I spoke to the president over the last several days, and President Trump told me that if Iran does anything at all to the negative, they will pay a price like few countries have ever paid before. So he's doubling down on that implicit nuclear threat. Now, again, I could be wrong about this. Maybe it's the case that when Donald Trump penned that deranged tweet, he wasn't thinking, or if he was thinking at all, he wasn't thinking about nuclear annihilation, but that's the overall implication by saying something like that. And John Bolton doubled down on that. So really, for someone like John Bolton, who's a neocon, who uh, loves to jerk off to the idea of death and destruction and mass devastation, everything is really starting to fall into place for him. And he may actually get his wish of celebrating the fall of Iran in Tehran, by 2019. Before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. I'm inclined to state that someone like John Bolton is mo motivated by defense industry stocks, but I think he just genuinely loves war. He thrives off of it. There are many sick and twisted individuals in American government that love war. So now that Donald Trump Pen this tweet. John Bolton is pouncing on this opportunity right now. He's going to make sure that we ramp up tensions and escalate further with Iran. And that's really scary. So we have to make sure that we are especially vigilant currently and we watch everything that Donald Trump is doing because Republicans have been wanting to invade Iran for decades. And now with someone as easily manipulated as Donald Trump, more calculative and clever warmongers like John Bolton may finally get their wish. And it's on us to stop them before they can get us to that point. Or get Donald Trump to that point, rather. The second episode of Sasha Baron Cohen's Who is America aired this week. And to say it landed another Republican politician in hot water would be an understatement because one individual's career is now in jeopardy because of his appearance. And that politician is Georgia state lawmaker Jason Spencer, who's now being called on to resign immediately due to what he said and did on the latest episode of the program. Now, he was a problematic figure beforehand who spoke out in favor of Confederate statues, and he also is known for authoring a controversial bill banning burqas. And before the show aired, there's rumors that he even threatened to sue Sasha Baron Cohen if they aired the segment. I'm not 100% sure how true this is, but it would make sense after seeing 
exactly what transpired. So in this segment, Sasha Baron Cohen posed as his Israeli military character who was trying to teach Spencer how to defend himself against ISIS. Now, Cohen asked him if he knew how to tell the difference between a regular Muslim in a burqa and a terrorist in a burqa, and he claimed he did not. So Cohen told him to take a selfie stick with a phone on it and place it under Muslim women's burqas and take pictures of them in order to see if you can spot a weapon on them in order to determine whether or not they're terrorists or not. And in order to not seem suspicious, Cohen instructed him to act like a Chinese tourist. So Spencer began rattling off these nonsensical words that he thought sounded like Chinese, like Red Dragon and Ho Chi Minh City, like random stuff. And um, he did that. And in the second part, Cohen told him a way to draw attention away from himself in the event ISIS tried to kidnap him was to yell the N-word in public. And he did that multiple times. Now, in the last part, Cohen was trying to teach him how to intimidate terrorists. And he told Spencer that a way that you can intimidate an ISIS terrorist who tries to attack you is to act like a homosexual since they are afraid of gay people. And here's a clip of what happened. Now I am going to teach you how to use your buttocks to intimidate ISIS. Okay, go. America! If you want to win, you show some skin. Okay. Okay, show it to me. Now, try to touch me. I'll touch you, I'll make you a homosexual, you drop that gun right now, USA, okay. USA. Every time I watch that, it it's mind-boggling to me that Sasha Baron Cohen got him to do that. This is someone who was elected to a state assembly. I mean, this is someone who shouldn't be dog catcher based on what I saw there and... I, like, I don't have words for this. If somebody told you that a way to stop a terrorist would be, would be to pull down your pants and tell them that you're gay, um, I mean, at what point do the red flags not go up in your head and think, this is really fucking stupid? I mean, all you have to do is apply the most basic level of logic and think if someone with a gun comes up to you and is a terrorist and you pull down your pants, wouldn't they just shoot you? I mean, uh, again, it, trying to figure out what the logic was and what he was thinking, it, it's pointless because there was no logic there. Now, of course, as a result of this, the Georgia House Speaker, David Ralston, called on him to resign immediately saying, quote, Georgia is better than this. Now, Spencer responded after the segment aired, and here's what he told the Washington Post. Sasha Baron Cohen and his associates took advantage of my paralyzing fear that my family would be attacked. And posing as an Israeli agent, he pretended to offer self-defense exercises. As uncomfortable as I was to participate, I agreed to, understanding that these techniques were meant to help me and others fend off what I believed was an inevitable attack. 
My fears were so heightened at the time, I was not thinking clearly nor could I appreciate what I was agreeing to when I participated in this class. I was told I would be filmed as a demonstration video to teach others the same skills in Israel. Sasha and his crew further lied to me, stating that I would be able to review and have final approval over any footage used. I deeply regret the language I used at his request, as well as my participation in the class in general. If I had not been so distracted by my fears, I never would have agreed to participate in the first place. I apologize to my family, friends, and the people of my district for this ridiculously ugly episode. Finally, there are calls for me to resign. I recently lost my primary election, so I will not be eligible to hold office next term. Therefore, I will finish the remaining five months at my post and vacate my seat. Now, to give you some more context, he explains that he had this paralyzing fear of terrorism because after he introduced his controversial burqa ban, um, he states that he received death threats. And he said that, you know, when there was this uh, shooting at members of Congress on the baseball field where Steve Scalise was shot, he knew some of them. And that really contributed to his fear of a terrorist attack. So that's why he was so distracted and was able to be duped by Sasha Baron Cohen. But essentially, he's playing the victim here. But playing the victim and chalking this up to a paralyzing fear doesn't do you any justice, buddy, because Sasha Baron Cohen featured other people on the program, and he wasn't able to get them to say stupid things. He had Bernie Sanders on episode one. Couldn't get Bernie Sanders to agree that solving income inequality would be to move the 99% into the 1%. Now, I know that that doesn't make sense, but that was the whole point of the segment. Now, additionally, he had uh, Dick Cheney on this episode. He got Dick Cheney to sign his waterboarding uh, kit, and it was hilarious. I won't spoil it all for you because I think it's hilarious, and you need to watch it yourself. But even Dick Cheney kind of stuck to the usual Republican Party talking points when it comes to torture. So if you come up in this situation where it seems a little bit sketch and you're not exactly sure and there are multiple times when someone tries to get you to do or say something stupid, if you continue doing that, I mean, that's just on you. You pull down your fucking pants. That, there's no explanation for that. You're just stupid. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a dick, but to pull down your pants and think that that would be an effective way to stop a terrorist who's pointing a gun at you. I don't know what else to say. You're just stupid. Sane, rational individuals would respond to that by saying, I'm not going to pull down my pants. How is this going to stop a terrorist? But you didn't do that, Jason. So you look foolish because you are a fool and I can't wait to see the next episode because Sasha Baron Cohen is showing that our elected officials in this country, they're as crazy as the policy ideas that they continue to espouse and, and uh, champion. So this is great. It's very revealing. It shows what we all kind of thought. Politicians, particularly Republicans, are downright fucking insane. So at this point, I don't think you can really ignore the momentum that the Abolish ICE movement um, has gained over the last month. I mean, this movement is undoubtedly gaining traction. You just can't deny that. And the reason why we have a lot of momentum is because our argument makes sense. ICE is a government agency that was founded in 2003. It doesn't 
secure the border like everyone likes to claim it does. So this is an agency that's unnecessary, that's just known for being unnecessarily and unusually cruel and inhumane to immigrants. So we've been making this argument, but there's a skit from Michelle Wolf and her show on Netflix where she concisely takes the arguments we've all been saying and puts it into a short condensed clip that's satirical and she basically has made the best case against ICE that I've ever seen and she did this by comparing them to ISIS. Are you worried about your country? Do you feel like your land is being invaded by foreign intruders who want to change your culture? Do you believe your way of life is under attack? And are you ready to finally do something about it? Then apply now to join ICE. ICE is fighting to make a difference. ICE is protecting our values and beliefs. ICE is rooting out the foreign enemy. ICE is terrorizing the invaders. ICE is attacking when they least expect. ICE is blowing up the status quo. I joined to be part of a group of like-minded individuals really devoted to a cause. I joined after I watched some badass videos online. I joined because I wanted to secure the border. But then I found out that's actually Border Patrol's job. I joined to capture those MS-13 animals who are infesting America. I haven't seen any yet, but I've heard about them. We're an age-old American tradition dating all the way back to 2003. So slightly younger than that curly-haired kid on Stranger Things, Gaten Matarazzo. That sounds Italian. We're not deporting those guys yet. I'm Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. It's popular nowadays to say ICE is bad, but there's no better representation of American values right now than ISIS. And as an equal opportunity employer, we accept all levels of experience and education from low to very low and actively welcome those with diagnosed anger issues. I wanted to join the regular police. But they told me they wouldn't take someone who was already under arrest. Animal control said, nope. The TSA rejected me because I kept asking if there was something called Sky Jail. Is there? I got kicked out of my neighborhood watch because I threw a microwave at a kid. And we love that. Join us today and you too can tell your ISIS story. ISIS waging war for everything that's holy in this country. I guess you could call it a holy war. ISIS, guaranteeing my ticket to heaven. Take it from me. No organization is better than ISIS. ISIS! So that was both entertaining and insightful. And I think that from now on, whenever I make the case that we need to abolish ICE, I'm just going to show people that video because it has all of the arguments that we've been making. So one of the um, actors states, I joined ICE because I wanted to secure the border. But then I found out that's actually Border Patrol's job. Exactly. I mean, you have ICE offices in Portland, Oregon, in New York, and if you got rid of those offices, well, they're nowhere near the southern border. If you abolished ICE, of course, that wouldn't impact border security whatsoever because there's already an agency dedicated to patrolling the border, and borders existed before ICE was formed because, as one of them also stated, you know, <laughs> we're an age-old American tradition dating all the way back to 2003 slightly younger than that curly-haired kid on Stranger Things. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's just such 
a persuasive way to make an argument and to do it using satire. I think it's it's particularly powerful. Now, also, one of them states, I joined to capture those MS-13 animals who are infesting America. I haven't seen any yet, but I've heard about them. And that's another argument that I haven't really touched on that is also it's often made in defense of keeping ICE. Well, you know, they're there going after criminals. They're taking on these MS-13 thugs who are, you know, um, causing havoc in our country. But that's not really what they're doing. ICE has become the American equivalent of the Gestapo. They're harassing immigrants. They're tracking down immigrants. They're following them to church and schools. And they're an agency that represents everything wrong with America's immigration system. So, I mean, that was just, it was a brutal take on ICE. I don't have much more to say about this, but I just wanted to share this video with you because I think that if you want to persuade people to abolish ICE and get on board, this is a great video to show them because when you look at this argument from, you know, under the lens or through the lens, really, of satire, it really makes it seem that abolishing ICE is a common sense position. And we're winning. Because even if abolish ICE was unpopular a few months ago, well, turns out now 43% of Democratic Party voters support abolishing ICE. So I would highly encourage individuals like Bernie Sanders to jump on this bandwagon because people like Kirsten Gillibrand have already embraced Embolish Ice and you're allowing them to outflank you from the left and you're having to defend your position on immigration from the right. And that's not what you want to do, especially if abolishing ICE is the morally right thing to do. We don't need this organization. We don't need to reform this organization. We have like a million different agencies dedicated to immigration. We don't need ICE. They've proven that they're not an asset. All they're doing is cruel things. They're tracking down immigrants. They are the Gestapo. And it's time we abolish them. A Democratic Party candidate named Ann Kirkpatrick was recently booed at a Democratic Party forum by liberal voters when she indicated her support for the American equivalent of the Gestapo otherwise known as ICE. Now, she was also booed when she said she supports the Democratic Party leadership's condemnation of Maxine Waters when she suggested that citizens should continue protesting Trump officials. As a result, Fox News decided to bring her on to presumably discuss just how radical the left has become and how much of a victim she was for getting booed at this liberal forum. But instead, they accidentally booked the wrong person. They booked a candidate named Barbara Letalian from Massachusetts who actually is against Donald Trump's immigration policies. And <laughs> what you'll see here is hilarious because they had no idea how to handle this situation. I just want to be really clear. If you would have declared your support for ICE agents... Ooh. Would you have supported Democratic leadership in condemning Ms. Waters' comments? And joining us now, that candidate, the only Democrat on stage to support ICE, Ann Kirkpatrick. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Tell us why you do support ICE. Good morning. I'm actually here to speak directly to Donald Trump. I feel that what's happening at the border is wrong. I'm a mother of four, and I believe that separating kids from their parents is illegal and inhumane. 
I'm actually Barbara Letalian. I'm a state senator representing a large immigrant community and running for Congress in Massachusetts. I keep thinking about what we're putting parents through, imagining how terrifying that must be for those families, imagining how it would feel not knowing if I'd ever see my kids again. We have to stop abducting children and ripping them from their parents' arms, uh, stop okay. putting kids in cases, you want and to, stop you, making three-year-olds defend themselves in court. Well, that that, that practice stop has stopped at this point, Ms. Kirkpatrick, right? Score political points with your base. Well, and families have, have been reunited. Kids have been reunited uh, with their families. Again, my name is Barbara Italian, and I refuse to believe yeah, okay. that our only options are Who's open borders or traumatized. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they uh, they couldn't let her on, you know, and just have her challenging right wing orthodoxy. So of course, what do they do? They had to cut her off unbelievable rather than trying to engage with someone who's already on your program cut her mic who was that they said well it was the wrong person that you booked <laughs> and she probably knew i mean i don't know much about the details but she probably knew that she was the wrong person and they didn't intend to have her on so she decided to take that opportunity to speak directly to donald trump and it was absolutely brilliant because she knows Donald Trump watches Fox News. So if you really want to get a message across to Donald Trump, that's the way to do it. Now, they kind of engaged with her a little bit before they cut her off. And one of the hosts said that the children have already been reunited with families. But even though there's thankfully been an effort to reunite families by Trump's administration, thanks to a court ordering him to, there's still more than a thousand children that need to be reunited. Thus far, Trump reunited about 1,200 families, but there's a total of 2,551 that were separated. Meaning, in the family reunification process, we haven't even reached the halfway point yet, so there's still a lot more to go. So to say that the families have already been reunified, that's just really misleading. Because, yes, some families have been reunified, and they wouldn't have been reunified if a court didn't make Donald Trump do it, but there's still lots of families that have not been reunited yet, which is disgusting. Every day that children are separated from their parents, they're scared, they're traumatized. So... To just brush it off, it's just absurd. But of course, they didn't want to further engage with her. They kind of threw in some right-wing right -wing talking points that were false. But, I mean, they just can't allow someone with a different idea than what they have to penetrate their right-wing echo chamber. And it's funny, we saw how they reacted, but individuals who claim to be in favor of free speech, like Dave Rubin... Well, he purports that it must be the left who's ostensibly, uh, you know, against freedom of speech and they're intolerant of ideas that aren't their own. But look, you have here an example of Fox News cutting someone off who dared to speak out against Donald Trump. Now, I get that Fox News's whole job is to do propaganda for the Republican Party, but certainly those individuals had the opportunity to engage with Barbara and they didn't. They cut her off. So how can people like Dave Rubin still claim with a straight face that it's the left that's intolerant of other ideas? Give me a break. I mean, they had an opportunity, if they really wanted to defend Donald Trump, to debate her. I mean, it shows that they're not really believers of their own political ideology. Because if you actually believe 
in the views that you espouse, then you wouldn't be afraid to have those views challenged. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't not share this because I thought it was absolutely hilarious. So Dave Rubin, in my opinion, is one of the more harmful figures in American political discourse because he pretends to be a liberal while espousing right-wing and conservative talking points, so that kind of gives him this sort of credibility among conservatives when he basically denounces and lies about the left. Now, since he started taking money from the Koch brothers, since his program was sponsored by Learn Liberty, um, he began growing increasingly conservative because he is the definition of a sellout. So he recently did what he's been doing for the past few months. He went on Fox News and he decided to speak about the left and listen to the implication of what he's saying about the left and where they're headed in terms of violence and discourse. So, Dave, the problem I have with the rhetoric is that it makes any kind of intelligent conversation impossible. I do think that there are real issues at the heart of the Putin-Trump summit, and, you know, you can have whatever view you want on them, but they seem like they're worth discussing. The second you start calling people traitors, accusing them of a felony, uh, how can you talk those issues through? Yeah, well, first off, it's always good to be with you, Tucker, you racist, homophobic Nazi, you. So it's unbelievable. on that note, on that note, um, yes, the, the rhetoric on both sides, but particularly the left, has been ramped up to a point where we're basically getting to the place where we will be excusing violence if it's not excused already. Yes. And, and this mob mentality that we've talked about a bunch of times before, uh, it's, it's spreading everywhere. And I, I did a video a couple months back how internet culture is becoming mainstream culture. The, the trolling and attacking and fighting that used to be relegated just to the sort of basement of the internet is now leaking out everywhere. And, and our politicians are now telling people to troll people at their homes and, and dox people and all of this awful stuff. I mean, just a great sort of simple example that I can give you is when I was on the car ride over here tonight to do this show, uh, a Hollywood director, actor, producer, great guy who I know who's a lefty who uh, you would disagree with on a ton of stuff, a guy by the name of Mark Duplass, uh, who's a great guy who I've had on my show, uh, who's been reaching across the aisle trying to say to the liberals and the left, you know, guys, let's try to be a little more tolerant. He put out a tweet basically saying, you know, you might want to follow conservative Ben Shapiro. He's a decent guy and maybe it'll open up your eyes to some stuff. I'm, I'm paraphrasing basically. The amount of hate that he got caused the guy to delete the tweet because the mob just goes after anyone that dares say, let's be tolerant. And if that's really where we're at right now, then yeah, what you've been talking about on this show for quite some time about this all escalating to violence. We'll ha if we can't talk, then the only thing left is violence. And I'm doing everything I can to avoid that. I think, right. I think you're trying to do it. And I think there's a bunch of other people trying to do it too. And we've just got to get louder and keep showing people that that's truly the answer here. I hate violence. And if you ever hear me excusing it, I hope you call me on it because it's wrong. Uh, I, Dave, I thank you. promise you I will. So if you've been listening to Dave Rubin recently, that shouldn't be too surprising to you, but it's still really problematic. And I think one of the more problematic things that he said, and it's also not based in reality, but the overall assumption here was that this rhetoric surrounding Donald Trump, it's 
it's gotten a little bit extreme, right? And Tucker Carlson said that, you know, this talk of him being a treasonous traitor, it's really problematic. Now, I get that Russiagate hysteria is a problem. We have individuals trying to paint the DNC hacks as an attack comparable to Pearl Harbor. That's problematic. But in talking about the left's rhetoric, I mean, you can't just dismiss hysteria on the right with regard to Obama. They called him a Muslim. They called him a communist. They compared him to Hitler. They freaked out when he wouldn't salute a soldier or did a half-ass salute. They freaked out when he wore a tan suit. I mean, to say that the left can be hysterical when it comes to Trump to talk about Trump derangement syndrome, you've got to also talk about Obama derangement syndrome because hysteria is something that we always see. I mean, it's something that's going to become a lot more common. It's just one of the consequences of a polarized society. But the goal here is to paint the left as the hysterical Looney Tunes. And Dave Rubin started the um, the interview by saying, Tucker, it's always good to be with you, you racist, homophobic Nazi. And he says this to imply that the left is intolerant because anyone that they disagree with, they just resort to, you know, lobbing these attacks at them. They're sexist, they're homophobic. But if you really dive into the details there, you'll see that we're not just throwing those words around. I mean, certainly neoliberal centrist Democrats are doing that. They call Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders supporters sexist Bernie bros, but Generally speaking, I think that when you call someone who's against marriage equality a bigot or homophobic, I think that's a pretty accurate descriptor. When you call someone who is against immigrants and even legal immigration a xenophobe or a racist, I think that's a pretty accurate descriptor. But there's no nuance here. Just the fact that you're calling someone a racist or a homophobe or a Nazi to Dave Rubin... They're all the same. You can't separate the legitimate accusations from the illegitimate accusations. This is just, you know, what the left always does. They smear. They lie. But when he's talking about the problems with the left, when he's talking about how, how the left is kind of poised to become violent, well, he doesn't mention violence on the right. And in fact, David Dole of the Rational National did a great job pointing out how Dave Rubin didn't even mention once the violent attack that a right-wing terrorist carried out last year that killed Heather Heyer. But in spite of that, in spite of him ignoring the right, he states, we're basically getting to the place where we will be excusing violence. Now, of course, what he's talking about is violence on the left. He also states, internet culture is becoming mainstream culture. The trolling and attacking and fighting that used to be relegated to the sort of basement of the internet is now leaking out everywhere, and our politicians are now telling people to troll people at their homes and dox people and all of this awful stuff. Now, what he's referencing there is Maxine Waters saying that if you see a Trump official in public, you should protest them. She did not suggest that you troll or dox people. She suggested that you protest people. Now, in talking about how intolerant the left has become, how they're always protesting, you know, right-wing speakers on college campuses, he never speaks about the left-wingers who are disinvited from college campuses. 
He doesn't talk about how right-wing universities like the Bob Jones University never invites liberal speakers. He doesn't like to talk about intolerance on the right, which obviously it's a lot more prevalent on the right, even if you have authoritarian-minded SJWs. Well, right-wing intolerance is obviously much more problematic. That's not even controversial. If Dave Rubin wanted to test this, all he had to do was meet with one of his, you know, newfound evangelical friends and try to hold his husband's hand in front of them or kiss him in front of them. And he'd see who's real fucking intolerant pretty quickly. But he states here, you know, another way to prove his uh, point is he invoked the example of Mark Duplass, who recommended Ben Shapiro to people. But then he states the mob went crazy because they just go after anyone that dares to say, let's be tolerant. Now, the goal here overall was to convey that the left is just intolerant of anyone that disagrees with them. In fact, that's a quote that he said. And his overall goal was to not so subtly suggest that the left is on the cusp of becoming violent given how intolerant they've become. But he's ignoring a really inconvenient fact. Left-wing violence, when you compare that to right-wing extremism and violence... There's no competition. Since September 12th of 2001, nearly half of all deaths related to terrorism have been carried out by far right-wing extremists at 47%. Now, radical Islamic terrorism has killed more people overall, largely due to the attack on Pulse nightclub, but there's been more separate incidents of terrorism by far right extremists than there has even been of radical Islamic extremism. Right-wing extremists have carried out 74% of all terrorist attacks since 2001. Now, the Anti-Defamation League disaggregated incidents of right-wing terrorism and they found that 43% of those instances of violence are from white supremacist terrorists. 42% are carried out by anti-government extremists, groups like the Sovereign Citizens Movement. 11% come from anti-abortion extremists and then you have anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant extremists accounting for less than 5% overall. So the rhetoric you see surrounding abortion white supremacy, anti-Muslim bigotry, xenophobic rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric is more likely statistically and factually to lead to violence on the right than anything the left says or does. But yet, according to Dave Rubin, it's the left who's on the cusp of becoming more violent. And he claims that they're less tolerant than even right-wingers. So you'd say that Mike Pence is more tolerant of your homosexual lifestyle dipshit? Is that honestly what you're going to say? I mean, this this is an individual who his argument is goofy specifically because it's not his own argument. I mean, Dave Rubin, even though he claims to be a liberal, is nothing more than a right-wing Republican Party hack. He's doing the bidding of right-wing extremists. He brings on individuals who are right-wing extremists, lets them say whatever they want, spew whatever bullshit they want, doesn't check them at all. So if anyone is responsible for violence, it's right-wingers. And if he wants to blame the left, he needs to look in the fucking mirror and see what he's doing by enabling these alt-right lunatics on his own shitty show. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, we'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. So, I've got to admit, you guys, lately, 
I heard an argument against socialism from my conservative friends that is so persuasive that I think it's safe to say I've officially been red-pilled. So this is a one-word argument that will crush socialism in any circumstance. So if one of your progressive or liberal or social democratic or democratic socialist friends bring up socialism to you, here's the only word you have to say to destroy their argument. Now this is big, so let's, uh, let's switch camera angles and let's zoom in a little bit here. Bring it in a little bit more. Stop. Okay, get ready for this because this is gonna blow your mind. Venezuela. 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 so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. Hey everyone, I'm here with Sarah Smith, congressional candidate running to represent Washington State's 9th Congressional District, and she's returning on my program now for uh, the, I think the third time. She was on Establishment Exiles once, I interviewed her once, and now she's back because her primary is coming up soon. Sarah, welcome back and tell us the date of your primary. Thank you so much for having me. It's so glad to be back. Um, it's always fun to have you on. Oh, thank you. Uh, so our ballots are actually, we're mail-in. Our ballots are already in the mail right now, but the last day to turn them in, so our, our the last day to turn your ballot in is August 7th. So that's our primary day is August 7th. Yeah, so this is definitely a race to watch. Um, I don't know if many of you know this, but Sarah Smith is actually one of the original Justice Democrats, and she got a really nice boost after the victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, I remember seeing an article. I don't remember the publication, so um, they'll have to forgive me for not being able to give them credit. But it, talking about how you might be the next Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you got a big <laughs> shout out from her. So things are looking a lot different now than the last time we talked. So tell us what's happened, because you've kind of gotten a huge boost. Yeah, it, things took off after Alex's victory. Um, it was Seattle Weekly was the publication that that actually called. That was really intimidating for me because I respect Alex a lot. I, I've known her since I started. We went to we affectionately called it Congress Camp together. Um, <laughs> where we all learned the ins and outs. We learned how to interview all that stuff. We kind of went through a, a four day crash course of Congress Camp, and uh, she was the, like we met at the original first summit. So that was really really cool. Um, but things have changed dramatically since her win. So where we were being iced out by a lot of mainstream media, even by local media, uh, where nobody was really taking us seriously and my incumbent was kind of brushing us off and uh, not really too worried about it. All of a sudden it was overnight. Um, she won and I was texting all the other JDs. I was like, this is awesome. All the other brand new Congress people, me and Rob Ryersey in Arkansas still talk all the time. And we were, he was like, no, she won. And we were going bananas. And then the next morning I woke up and I was so excited that I actually woke up at five o'clock in the morning, which is half hour before my alarm. <laughs> and I started checking my email and my campaign email just surged. I went from, uh, this is going to sound horrible. I went from 108 unread emails to 391 unread emails wow. because I'm that person that never clears all my email notifications. Same here. Same <laughs> here. 
we have we did an interview with Q13 Fox News. The Seattle Times scheduled one for with us on Tuesday. The Seattle South Seattle Emerald did one with us. Seattle Weekly did one with us. Um, We've got a forum coming up or a forum that uh, it's on Saturday. It's the League of Women Voters. Um, oh, my gosh. What else is happening? There's so much happening. Um, I I finally had the opportunity to leave my job, which was really great. Wow. Our, our fundraising fundraising picked up and I've only been at it full time for a couple of days. And I already don't know how I did it before. <laughs> when I was like, yeah, I don't know how you guys did it either. I, you were no you were doing a lot. You had to have not had any free time to yourself. It was it was really hard. And this might be a little surprising. I, I tend to be a little bit of uh, introverted extrovert is the phrase that everyone uses, where I love people, I'm very social, and then I'll just suddenly be like, Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I just yeah. need like a minute to myself. And so finding that balance and trying to breathe is really, really hard. Um, that's actually something that I try to encourage other candidates to do. I'm fortunate enough that I have a volunteer who actually sends me text messages throughout the day. And he's like, Did you remember to drink water? Did you remember to eat today? Have you taken 30 minutes without your phone? So he's really, really good about keeping up on me. And there's times when I'm like, I haven't consumed any water today and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's those little moments of reminding me to take a second to breathe in, in all the chaos that's going on. Um, but we've really picked up our volunteer force. We just figured out the numbers. We have 71 active volunteers. That's amazing. So, yeah. So it's not people that are just sitting in our email list or that keep RSVPing. It's it's people that are showing up, that are phone banking, that are face banking, that are text banking, that are out canvassing. Um, we have got a core team of canvassers that are now spread out among the district and they're running their own canvassings now. Um, we have banners, we have street signs coming in on Friday. We've got posters that are going up all over the place. Um, we are, we really surged and we picked up and we got our campaign office, which is amazing. That's big. And it's not a physically huge office. It's probably the size of the one I'm in now, but um, it's ours and it's a place for everyone to come and meet and it's a great facility. And I, I love having all the campaign stuff there. My husband loves having all the campaign stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, yes. But he uh, it's it's been crazy since Alex's win. It's been huge. There's just this new I feel like new life has been breathed into the progressive movement because we kind of had oh, yeah. this 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 period of time where we all kind of felt like we've been punched in the gut. I mean, it was after Allison Hartson lost and David yeah. Hildebrand as well, two progressives in, you know, the Diane Feinstein race. And yeah. now Everybody is really surging. And I, I met one of your volunteers actually at the Jimmy Dore show. Oh. Super excited about your campaign. Yes. Um, and you could awesome. just feel that energy. It's <laughs> like people really feel rejuvenated. They know that we have a chance now. So yeah. now that you actually have the ear of people in the establishment, perhaps more people may see this than the last interview. I really want you to take the time to explain the differences between you and your opponent, Adam Smith, because it's it's like night and day. So what is it about Adam Smith that makes him not progressive, even if it is the case that members of the Democratic Party establishment like to characterize him as a progressive? Sure. Um, so Adam Smith is a he's a war hawk. Mm -hmm. That's what he is, plain and simple. He takes thousands and thousands of dollars from the military industrial complex, from the defense industry. Um, he takes all this money from the defense industry and he does things like uh, he votes in favor of the Iraq war. He votes in favor of extending the Patriot Act. Um, he's done a, a lot of things. And I think one of the key differences between me and Adam is Adam is always late to the party. He is 
always not he's never on the forefront he's always dragging his feet and i mean the the fact is that adam sits and waits for other progressive women in congress to take action and move forwards and have bold legislation and then he tries to ride their coattails into the sunset and act like he was there the whole time um but where adam is just coming to these conclusions I started at these conclusions. Back in November of 2017, I signed on to a part of brand new con Congress's platform to abolish ICE. And that was November of 2017. And he's been saying he's not for it. He, he doesn't like the idea. He was one of two Democrats that voted to create ICE in the beginning. And he all of a sudden, after we had our, our endorsement panel at a local magazine called The Stranger, um, he find I, I said I'm not in, I'm in favor of abolishing ICE. He said he's not. And then a week later, I kid you not, a week later, he decides actually we really do need to apologize. I'm totally in favor of it. I, I co-sponsored a bill with Pramila again, a progressive woman leading the charge loudly and proudly, not having to be prompted, not having to be told what to do. And all of a sudden he jumps on her coattails and he's like, yeah, that where Adam comes to these conclusions, I started there. So if he's got no vision left, move aside. It's time for the next generation of unbought, unpurchased Democrats. And that's the biggest key difference between me and Adam is that I'm not bought and paid for. And he is, and it shows in his votes, it shows in his history. And it's time that he stepped down and move on and pass the baton to a progressive woman who can lead. Exactly. It's kind of this option that individuals in the ninth district have. They can have someone who is a counterfeit progressive or someone like you who's leading on progressive issues. I mean, again, saying that you were there on Abolish Ice months before any of us were talking about it, that is leadership that I think people in the ninth district deserve because they are progressive. They want someone like you. It's just a matter of, I think, getting your name out there now you touched on pramila i do want to ask you about the endorsement um sure. because she is one of the most progressive people in congress when you look at her record undoubtedly you can't take anything away from that but she endorsed adam smith over you and um i tweeted about it some progressives are a little bit hurt by it so i just yeah. wanted to get your response of course so i completely understand and when we were first asked about it, it took my team 15, 20 minutes to find the endorsement at all. So it tells me a lot. The endorsement is nothing she's announced. There was an original uh, reporter who who dug into the story, Walter Yates, and he went through her social media for, I think he said, like uh, about three months or three weeks or something like that. He went through for a prolonged period of time, Twitter, Facebook, emails, everything, not a whisper of it. And it's not even listed on her campaign website. It's actually listed on her House of Representatives websites on her endorsement document at the very bottom. And I've got to say, it tells me a lot about what I need to know about that endorsement. Um, from if I had to wager a guess, some kind of agreement was arrived at, some kind of backdoor deal got taken or took place. And it's it's convenient for me to look at to see, oh, okay, Adam co-sponsored her bill. Oh, and she endorsed him. Gee, I wonder if those things are tied together. Um, so I try to keep in the back of my mind that she is also still a, rep a representative in Congress who's trying to fight to get legislation passed. And I think that she is, it, it doesn't seem to me like an endorsement she's singing from the rooftops. So it, it's it's entirely possible a deal was made in order to help her get legislation passed or co-sponsored or something like that. And she was strong-armed. And I choose to believe that because Pramila has been about progressive values from the beginning. Um, she always has been. And I, I try to choose to believe to see the good in people and see the, see the sort 
circumstance and the whole picture. So to me, I, I think this was a strong arming more than anything. Um, I think something like a, a big push against it, if, if people are, are really enthusiastic about that, if they really want her to change her endorsement, I mean, of course, I'm fine with it. I totally understand and agree and would love to have an endorsement from Pramila Jayapal. Um, but I think that if that's something we want to push on, I don't think that's going to be a hard thing to get to make happen if the progressive movement can coalesce and put some pressure. Because I mean, you know, Rokana, he's amazing. He he did the right thing. He stepped up. He he dual endorsed, and he's he's reached out to me and he's like, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to get involved in your race, but I think what you're doing is amazing. Let me know if you need anything. So I think that's the right attitude to take. Because personally, whether or not there's a deal there, whether or not there's something on the table, whether or not you're going to get something out of it, I think that if you have another progressive running in in a race, if you have another justice democrat a slate member or something like that and you want and you're being pushed to endorse just stay out just don't endorse at all that's i think the best practice is silence in those cases um nobody can force you to endorse and at some point you have to just stand on your morals and say absolutely not but i understand that congress is complicated and hard and so i'm trying to be empathetic uh regardless of my own personal feelings about it <laughs> right right I, and, and i get where you're coming from because you may be in that position exactly. where there's going to be a new slate of justice democrats in 2020 mm -hmm. and you know it's going to be awkward for you to endorse people who aren't your colleagues so i think that you have a really um a measured response to this because when i saw it i just i had that visceral what the hell you know <laughs> <Me> too. Um, <laughs> first <laughs> yeah it's tough it's 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 tough because you know endorsements they mean a lot i don't necessarily know the weight that you know that endorsement will have you know in washington's ninth congressional yeah. district but it's just kind of like you know if, if you're really trying to per basically further this progressive movement you know you you've got to come out and show us that you're you're fighting on the ground with us so yeah exactly. um thanks for responding to that that was of something course. that I, I definitely wanted to get your take i saw that today and i'm like oh i'm talking to sarah so <laughs> perfect yes um. <laughs> and I, I i completely understand everyone and their feelings about it i totally understand and i absolutely share it um but i think as far as whether or not it holds any weight i mean the washington state democratic party progressive caucus has endorsed me demand universal health care has endorsed That's me awesome. Progressive party endorsed me our revolution king county and pierce county endorsed me DSA and Olympia endorsed me. So it really doesn't carry a big weight if you can't get any other progressive organizations on board with you. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to find. <laughs> right. That And that makes sense. You, you have all the progressive movement behind you. Um, and, and, and I've got to, like, I haven't heard much from Adam Smith. He's got to be scared now. And I wanted to ask you this. Has he agreed to any debates? Have you debated him yet? What's the status on that? Because if you are seeing this progressive star rising who's running against you and after seeing what happened to joe crowley um he's got to be afraid right so has he agreed to endorse or not endorse to debate you that would be amazing <laughs> if he could drop out and endorse you great right uh, <laughs> has he agreed to debate you what's his what's been his response to you because he has to be afraid of you now so I will give credit where credit is due. He is at least showing up and engaging with me in, in events and things like that. Um, Joe Crowley's biggest mistake is he he brushed Andrea off constantly, or yeah. Alexandria off constantly. Um, but he, Adam has, has he showed up to the first roundtable I ever did, which was wow. terrifying for me. Um, mm -hmm. But it was the Washington State Bernie Kratz. And I've come a long way since then. And, and so have all of us as or different organizations have come a, a long way in the year and change it's been since that debate. Um, we haven't had any formal debates 
states. We are both sitting at a forum on Saturday. This is with the League of Women Voters. Um, and then we're pretty much just pushing up to primary. To his credit, one of the reasons that a debate is not likely to happen is because the Republicans have strong-armed Congress and are keeping them there until the end of August. So they refuse, I, I believe it's a, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name, whatever. What's his name? I don't care about him. Uh, he refuses to let them break session until the end of August. So oh, okay. it's really, really difficult for them to get debates scheduled, to meet their obligations, to, to do their jobs, and then also debate and be out and campaign. So I do recognize that it's not necessarily a fault of the incumbent. I would be, uh, of course, I'm always open to it. Um, it's also really difficult in my mind, to debate with a guy who's just going to parrot whatever I say, <laughs> um, which is really funny to me. I mean, I'm flattered that he's he's suddenly parroting everything that I have to say in right. the media, but it's difficult to debate a guy like that. So I'm, I'm not sure a debate would be terribly exciting. <laughs> right, right. He's a swagger jacker. <laughs> exactly. He's, again, riding the coattails of a progressive woman. That's what he's doing. That's his MO. So. Right, right. No, and I wanted to, because... Really, I look at you as a progressive leader, and I wanted to talk to you as a progressive leader, as someone who's just huge in this movement, about Abolish ICE. Because when you go by your policy platform, the brand new Congress Justice Democrat policy platform, they're all populist. But one, I think, important argument um, and a, really a point of pushback that we hear is that why are you guys all coming out in favor, myself included, of this Abolish ICE policy when it's not popular just yet? What is your response to that? Because right now, abolishing ICE is, it really is the moral movement forward. So that's, that's part of what we're, we're in. We're in an era of ethical politics. And abolishing ICE is a cornerstone of that ethical movement. We, we see kids kept in cages, families being separated, houses being raided. There's teachers being deported in the middle of class. When the, tr Donald Trump took office, he said he's only going to get rid of the bad ones. I'm sorry, a hardworking father of three who's being torn away from his kids is not one of the bad ones. The guy in South Seattle that was just taken and seized out of his workplace while he was working. He was just at his distillery or at his alehouse where he was, I think he was a, a busboy. He was just doing his job. He wasn't one of the bad ones. And it's it's ICE that's basically turned into this form of corporate brown shirts that's now going out and following the directives of God only knows who, wherever their corporate overlords tell these politicians to direct them. And it's it's kind of taken a turn. They become a violent organization. They become a, a violent part of the, the violence against the immigrant community. They're now they're a symbol of oppression of our immigrant brothers and sisters. Uh, and it's our obligation to step up and protect them from that. As progressives, one of our, our main goals is to be the shield for the people who are marginalized. It's to be that amplified voice for people that feel that they don't have a voice. And when we talk about abolishing ICE, we're not just talking about, about abolishing ICE, we're talking about elevating the voices of our immigrant community, making sure that they're heard. Um, they live in fear of this organization, of people reporting them to it. So when we talk about abolishing it, we, we also need to talk about what we want to do to move forwards away from ICE as well. We are right now, we are a country that, that rips families apart, that puts kids in cages, but that's not the country that we want to be. We want to be the country that has a department, something like a department of, of immigrant and refugee services, right, where we are able to help pair immigrant communities with labor, with uh, different uh, labor sources, get them into jobs, help them get green cards, apply for visas, talk, talk to them about what their options are for amnesty. Um, if we take the resources that we're expending in, in ICE and the DHS and Customs and Border Patrol and we dissolve those those 
uh, organizations and we put them into this new department, we can actually start having a positive effect on our immigrant community. Um, we can still enforce things like, you know, uh, uh, undocumented citizens and things like that, or undocumented persons and things like that. We can still enforce the border the border strength. We can still have have our our border patrol and thing like things like that. But our purview shifts away from stopping people from coming in and throwing them out once they get here to how do we help these people that are here live a dignified life? How do we help them create their American dream? How do we help them figure out what that means? How do we help them become a part of our country that they so desperately want to be a part of? It shifts our focus away from this culture of violence that we've become known for around the world, and it puts us back into the culture of humanitarianism and morality. So abolishing ICE is a cornerstone. It, it's the, one of the first things we have to do if we want to start making that transition away from that culture of violence, if that makes sense. No, totally. And the way that you explain it is really important because with everyone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yourself talking about it and, you know, really making the moral case for abolishing ICE, we are, in fact, changing minds really quickly, actually. I think it was 43% of Democratic voters now support abolishing ICE, whereas if you go back a couple of months ago, not even a plurality supported it. So yeah. if you make a moral argument, I think that you get people to think differently about specific political issues, and it's really important. So that's why I think that people who are at the forefront of this Abolish ICE movement really are progressive leaders. So definitely, um, I think it's it's super important. Now, one thing that I can't not ask you is because, um, let's say hypothetically, you win your primary, there's another huge blow up with Sarah Smith, you go on MSNBC, you go on Fox News, the number one question that you're probably going to get asked, well, Sarah, you support Medicare for all. How are we going to pay for this? And it's the hackiest argument that I hate. That you hate. <laughs> Me too. So it, uh, my soul dies a little bit each time I hear that. Um. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I know. Everyone's like, how are we going to pay for it? And I mean, the fact is, we already are. Mm -hmm. We're already paying for Medicare. We're already paying for for socialized programs like single payer healthcare with the, within the VA. The problem is we have all this money that we've wrapped up in things that don't actually matter or affect taxpayers. So we have this gigantic budget that all we have to do is we have to rebalance our budget, reprioritize what we're spending our money on. And then I am sure that we can redirect a lot of that money into single payer Medicare for all. And I mean, the other thing is that that people aren't talking about is they're not talking about, uh, they think they're separate, but they're not. Um, auditing the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. Hmm because that's gonna give us a realistic scope for our military budget, which is gonna change the entire congressional budget once we do that. So single-payer healthcare is not a crazy thing. It is something we're already paying for. It is something taxpayers are already putting money into. When you check your paycheck, you already see Medicare, uh, but we're, we capped it at, into the, at, at retirement age that you could actually start getting onto Medicare. Um, that was never the dream that it was founded on. Initially, Medicare was supposed to be expanded into a single payer system. So that's why the taxation system around it was set up the way it was. We just have to employ it the way that it was supposed to be set up. Um, but when we have single payer, we start to save money over time. And taxpayers are actually going to see a lowering of their costs. But I mean, we see it with with our premiums right now, too, right? When we have when we pay for health, when we pay for health insurance, we're not just paying for us, we're paying for uninsured persons, we're paying for hospital administrative fees, hospital rising costs, uh, falsely inflated costs for things like a bag of saline. Um, we're already paying these outlandish medical costs that we shouldn't be paying anyway. So if we move into a single payer system, it's money that's already been coming out of our paycheck. We're just using it in the most humane, correct way. Right. And it's interesting to hear you talk about that because um, I think that every candidate at this point 
who's running for Congress, who supports, you know, um, tuition free public college, Medicare for all. You're going to be asked this by mainstream media pundits. So I'm glad to hear that yes. you all are ha you have such <laughs> phenomenal responses to it um, because okay. it really it bugs me because it really is. I think it's just common sense. And if we could find a way to pay for the Iraq war, what was that? Two point four trillion dollars. I think um, it's six point four trillion total with all the wars uh, in the Middle East. Look, it's only going to cost about a trillion. It's going to cost one sixth of the amount of money we've spent on all these wars to pay for healthcare for all of our people forever. So I'm gonna go ahead and say I'd, I'd rather spend that one sixth of our <laughs> Middle East war budget on, you know, not dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> spending money on improving lives versus spending money on yeah. death and destruction. Hmm. And, you know, fighting oil wars and blockading <laughs> Somalia and areas where we don't want them to move oil tankers. I, f I feel like that money could be better spent on we the people. Right, right. It's almost <laughs> as if when we give up our hard-earned cash, we should get something in return. Yeah, it's hmm. like taxation is an agreement between the people and the government that the government's going to take care of our basic needs. And right now, the government's not fulfilling that obligation. So we mm -hmm. just need progressives in Congress who aren't going to be like, but how will we pay for it? And who are going to look and say, with that money right there, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we've already got it. And I told my, I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine. He's a, a great guy. He's actually a libertarian, a hmm. really cool person, super interesting guy to talk to. But I told him, what if I told you nothing about your taxes really changes very much for you as a middle class person? Nothing changes. You don't see any fluctuations in your paycheck. But suddenly you have health care. Suddenly you have good roads. Suddenly your kids can go to college without you having to save for a college fund. Wouldn't that be great? And he's like, that would be amazing. I'm like, cool. That's what I want to go to Congress and do. <laughs> <laughs> and when you frame it like that, there's there's no way that a normal working class American won't like that message it's it's going yeah. to resonate because you're you're going there even if they agree with you ideologically or your political philosophy your intentions are altruistic and one reason why i like justice democrats and brand new congress and candidates like you is because you don't take corporate money so when you say something i know that that's your authentic policy position so can you kind of Explain to me why not taking corporate PAC money. I think I asked you this, this before, but it's so fascinating. Why is disadvantaging yourself and not taking corporate money so important in this day and age? Oh boy, it's the new era of politics. I mean, we wanna make sure that our, our representatives in Congress are public servants. We wanna make sure that when they're taking money, it's from people and it's not from corporations who have special interests because it's gonna sound ridiculous when I say this, but it is so silly to me that we have politicians who take thousands and thousands and thousands from corporations and we they come out on this platform of, I'm gonna fight for working people and I'm gonna prioritize working people over corporations and we're supposed supposed to believe that they're going to fight for working people and not the corporations who paid them to say that. And it's it's kind of ridiculous that a lot of these Democrats that are still taking corporate money are trying to jump onto the populist platform and jump onto this whole um, working people first platform, while at the same time, you know, stocking their coffers with money from corporations. Right. We cannot trust that someone has a vested interest in the people if they're, they've still got their hands tied by big businesses. And one of the best things about not taking it is I can say things like Amazon created the homeless pro homelessness problem in Seattle and they should be held accountable for it. And I don't have 
have to worry about my funding. I don't have, I have nothing to fear because I'm not here for Amazon. I'm here for those homeless people. I'm here for those displaced persons. I'm here for those houseless persons. I'm here for those people. And so when I say that stuff, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be able to run my campaign the next day. I'm just fine waking up the next day and knowing that I'm going to be able to go into my office, take calls, write emails, go knock on doors and feel no, no kind of difference to my funding. Um, when we have public servants that are so committed to their job that that's what they want to do, they want to only serve the public, they can show it by rejecting corporate PAC money. And everyone thinks that the, the effects are only in your vote, right? They're only in what you vote for. That's actually not true. They're, they're in who the, the effects are seen in who you associate with. They're seen in what legislation you sit on and you and you wait for and you don't push forward yourself. Um, it's seen in, in what you talk about in your speeches, what you talk about in the media, how you present yourself when you talk about things, what you are and are not afraid to say. Because you get a lot of these representatives who are like, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of Medicare for all, single payer. And then they go on, on CNN and they're like, universal access to health care is a good mm -hmm. thing. And I'm like, no, single payer Medicare for all, single payer healthcare is a good thing. And they just do that, they play that little game, but that's how you see the effects of corporate PAC money in these representatives. And some of them I, I do, I think truly believe it doesn't affect their vote. And sure, it might not affect how you vote yes or no, but it's gonna affect on what you push through Congress. It's gonna affect on the committees that you sit on. It's gonna affect the people you associate with. It's gonna affect the connections you make. It's gonna affect who you go talk to in your community. It's gonna, go, it's gonna affect where you go talk to people in your community. So the effects are more than just yes or no votes. It's so much bigger than that. And when you reject corporate money, when you're only funded by the people, you don't have to worry about any of that. That's a lot of work to keep straight. I'd rather just not take money from corporations, take money only from people, and just focus on doing the right thing, which is fighting for working class Americans in this country. Yeah, It feels like it's liberating. Like, why go to Congress <laughs> and be someone's puppet? I don't like that. I barely like my husband telling me I have to do the dishes. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be beholden to anybody. The, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in this. I'm in this race, and I'm trying to to run for this position. And I want to be a representative because I want to be a representative for the people. And it doesn't make any sense to me to be compromised by whether or not a corporation donates to me. So for them to say, oh, we'll donate to your campaign if you promise to support this legislation or if you promise to abandon your position on this or this. Mm -hmm. I know because my platform is holistic. Every single plank in that platform, every single part of the progressive platform ties together to the rest of those planks. So to abandon one is to abandon the whole thing. It's to abandon my, my moral compass. It's to abandon my values and my ethics as a person. So to turn around and take corporate money when that's on the table, it, it, it just is counterintuitive. It's, it's completely antithetical to what I'm running to do. I don't want to represent that corporation. I want to help that person on the street who is having trouble making ends meet, who can't afford rent, who can't afford childcare, who can't afford to go to the doctor, who's terrified of walking around someplace because they have an ounce of weed in their pocket. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, that's the person I want to fight for because we all know the country we are today, right? We're, we're a country of, of, I've said it before, a, a country of violence. We're a country of despair. Our, our American dream is broken to the point that nobody knows what it is anymore. We're a country of, 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 in, of insecurity. We're a country that has no surety of, of what its future looks like. But those of us who are running without corporate PAC money, know the kind of future that we want. We know the kind of country that we want to be. And so we reject corporate money because that's the only way we're going to be able to fight to make that vision real, uncompromised and unbought. It's the only way to make it happen.
a hundred percent. And I think that even individuals who don't agree with your policy positions or disagree with some policy positions, they can still respect that it's your policy positions. It's not something that was cooked up, you know, by lobbyists. This is mm -hmm. your policy positions and you are operating based on what you think is right and morally necessary, you know, in a modern egalitarian society. So that's why I think that even if there are Republican candidates that don't take corporate money, even if I disagree with them on every single policy issue, I think there's that respect for them just having that opinion themselves. And I kind of feel like that's why progressives have this really widespread marketable approach to politics, mm -hmm. because centrists, maybe even if they might not agree with you, maybe some conservatives, they still they've got to respect it. That's why I think Bernie Sanders was so popular among moderates, you know, um, because if somebody is not taking corporate money, that tells you a lot about their character and what's fueling those policy positions that they're taking. So look, before we go, this is probably going to be the last time that I have you on before the primary. Can you make <laughs> your last pitch? And can you um, also tell us what we can do to support your campaign and everything that's needed? Because I know that, you know, it, time's running out. So what can we do in this last uh, couple of days to make sure you defeat Adam Smith? Of course, there is so much that you can do. So I know I kind of talked about it. I can go off on a little bit of a, of a I get on a soapbox a little bit. I, um, no, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I meant every word that I said, and I I believe in this platform. This, I, it didn't, it didn't take, corporate consultants it didn't take policy consultants or policy analysts to tell me what is right i'm i'm running because i know what is right because it doesn't take someone else in my ear walking me through it because i i know that the things we're fighting for as progressives are important they're essential if we want to make change now is the time to make that change 2018 is the that's the beginning of the big blue wave that's the beginning of the progressive takeover that's the beginning of writing the ship and seizing our seat back at the congressional table because, I mean, Mike Hepburn down in Florida says it all the time. If they're not going to give us a seat, then we are going to pull up a folding chair. But 2018 is the year that we're going to do it. So if you want to get on board with my campaign, if if this progressive, big, bold vision, if if fire and salt and, and all the things in between are what you want representing our district here in the ninth, then go to votesarasmith.com. You have a votesarasmith.com slash call. We'll let you make do phone banking and text banking, which is huge for us right now because we have mail-in ballots. We're trying to remind people to get those back in the mail, get them in the drop box. Um, votesarasmith.com slash volunteer. We have canvassing all the time for the next three weeks. You can go and pick a time slot. We're going to be all over the district. Um, but we have a big canvassing team. It's a lot of fun. We feed you. I promise I'll bribe you with food. Come and walk some doors <laughs> with me. Um, but I, our weather is great too. It gets you outside and walking around and talking about things that matter to you. Um, one of the, the big things you can do too is in the last push here, we could really use some donations too. Uh, votesarasmith.com slash donate is the way you can get to do that. We're trying to raise some money to uh, keep our office lights on. We're going to need to get our own office internet soon and we cannot use the building's Wi-Fi anymore. There's not enough ports. So we're trying really hard <laughs> to get that. Uh, we've talked about um, providing uh, reusable water bottles to our team to see if we can get some of that going. We want to order some postcards. Um, we still have a lot of time and a lot of things we need to do before the 7th. So if you can go to votesarasmith.com slash donate, if you can make any kind of monetary donation, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, votesarasmith.com slash volunteer if you're in the area. Come on out. Join us for canvassing or events or votesarasmith.com slash call. If you're not local, you can call from your the comfort of your own pajamas in your own home. I have done it myself. 
Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of opportunity to still get involved with these campaigns. This is our final push. We're optimistic. We think we can do it. We believe in our message. We think the people of the ninth do too. So if if you really do want to get on board with us, votesarasmith.com, you can find a ton of information. Well, look, we are going to all be watching that race very closely. Um, I might, I'm, if you win, I might not be able to... Um, even contain myself this time. I, I nearly <laughs> lost it with Ocasio-Cortez. I cried when she won. <laughs> I I couldn't contain myself. I was I was oh. jumping up and down, and I may actually lose it this time. Um, so <laughs> we're gonna I be watching. My, I sat down in my kitchen and I cried. So <laughs> we were both kind of mass tweeting that day. I remember. Yeah, it. we um, were. We were just all over the place. And Rob Ryerson and I were texting. I was texting Paula. I was texting everybody I could think of. I was like, "She's gonna win." <laughs> I could not contain myself. It was. It was. I mean, I didn't Huge. go to sleep until I think like. 5 a.m., 6 yeah. a.m. It was, I, I couldn't. One or two in the morning and I was up yeah. by five. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a lot. So yeah, um, I think you could do it. So we're all rooting for you. Um, man, Thank you. we're all going to be glued to our computers that day. So good <laughs> luck, kick ass, and we're Thank looking you. forward to it. Woo, thanks. <laughs> I'm here with Kenneth Mejia. He is a Green Party congressional candidate running to represent California's 34th district. And this is in Los Angeles, correct, Kenneth? Correct. So your campaign has been really exciting. I've, I've kind of watched your rise in politics. I know you were running for office before, and now you actually made it into the runoff. So you'll be going up against the corporate Democrat in November. Tell us why running as a Green Party candidate was so important to you and why you decided to challenge your opponent, who is uh, Jimmy Gomez. Yeah, so I first started three years ago in 2016 when we ran for the first time as a Democrat, as a write-in uh, during the Bernie Sanders surge. And after we saw what happened to him, how uh, they basically colluded, the DNC colluded against him into allowing Hillary to win, and then just seeing things as the Democratic Party wouldn't uh, put on their platform like single-payer health care or banning fracking, I said, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> I've been a Democrat, yeah. so I, I, I didn't. I also joined the Green Party because uh, they actually have a platform that many people agree with. You know, single payer, tuition free college, canceling student debt. Um, you know, things like rent control, and those were things that I strongly believed in too. So it's either I was going to go nonpartisan or or join a party that already had ballot access. So that's why it was important to me. We we also don't accept corporate money at all. And that's something uh, we're, we're very, very proud about. And, you know, our, our congressman, Jimmy Gomez, he receives lots of money from from corporate uh, PACs. And so we want to provide people those options and also introduce radical legislation um, like canceling student debt, abolishing ICE, full legal status for all, universal rent control. So, you know, that's sort of why we're running again and why we're running green. And if you're elected, you'd be the only member of Congress from the Green Party, correct? Correct. Yeah, we never uh, we never had anyone. Yeah, but um, we have also yeah we also have two greens who made it to the general in California as well. So Rodolfo uh, is running and Laura Wells. So they're also green. So hopefully we could get some more people uh, in there as well. It would be absolutely amazing. And I think if any time 
is going to be time for the Green Party. It's going to be now. We're seeing the rise of progressives. You know, we have uh, DSA-backed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York's 14th district. We have uh, Kenneth Mejia potentially making it into Congress. I think that for progressives of, of all stripes, this is really, really exciting. So I wanted to ask you about your um, opponent with regard to some policy issues, because um, I don't know where he stands on Medicare for all. I don't know where he stands on foreign policy. Can you kind of differentiate yourself from him and why specifically individuals in that district should go with you, who's clearly the more progressive choice? Right. So uh, if you look at Jimmy Gomez on paper, for the most part, he votes the right way. Um, he coasts, He's a co-sponsor of HR 676. He finally joined on on other progressive bills like the Free College for All Act. Um, but if you look at the... If you look at L.A., we're a huge Democratic stronghold. And when you look at the bills he co-sponsors, like Medicare for All, he receives so much money from health insurance companies and big pharma. Um, it's like, why? Well, why, why, why do you even do that? And he, he receives money from the largest student debt collector. And, you know, th these are just um, things that he does that although he votes right or he um, co-sponsors something progressive, he still takes money from the people who even, you know, fun are the people on the right. And that's sort of why he's not pushing hard for this uh, legislation like Medicare for all or, or college for all. And, um, you know, in terms of actual voting, um, he voted to fund and authorize ICE uh, last year. Um, you know, he also voted in terms of foreign policy to put sanctions on Syria, you know, North Korea, basically all those countries who... Um, the media likes to bring up and sort of depict them as our enemies so we could stay distracted as well. And so, you know, those are those are some of the big differences where we, we don't receive any corporate money like he does. So we could actually push these for, for these bills that are progressive even further because he'll co-sponsor, but he'll keep his mouth shut. Number two, um, you know, we could vote the right way too, but we could also introduce uh, legislation that could really help people like canceling student debt, or full legal status for all or abolishing ICE. And so, and he's just, he's just your bare minimum Democrat. And if you want your bare minimum Democrat, then you're really not gonna go anywhere. So that's sort of where, where we differ. Right. And, you know, I'll just say this. It's super easy for a Democratic incumbent who has a very progressive challenger to co-sponsor bills when they don't have power currently. But what's really important, I think, is when it comes up to a vote, when Democrats actually do retake back Congress, will they be there to fight? And you just I feel like you can't trust these individuals if they're taking that corporate PAC money. So I wanted to ask you, because your campaign is particularly exciting, because I think that if a Green Party member or a couple of them got elected to Congress, that would absolutely terrify individuals like Nancy Pelosi. So I got to ask what this what the response you think would be. If you got to Congress, do you think they try to marginalize you? Would would it be difficult to get committee appointments? How do you think the aggregate establishment would respond to you? Or do you think it'd be except you'd you'd be able to find um, basically like-minded colleagues in people like Pramila Jayapal or Ocasio-Cortez? How do you think the establishment would react to your victory? I mean, we, we already see it, how they did it to Bernie, how they did yeah. it to Alexandria. Um, what makes it even worse is we're a third party. They're going to basically shun us. They're going to say we're the reason for Trump, you know, particularly me, particularly for me. They're going to say, oh, he's too young. Um, I mean, they're not going to be accepting to it. As long as uh, what we tell people is 
you know, there may be good people in the Democratic Party, but the corruption is systemic, right? Mm -hmm. And and when you're sort of put in that position under that party, you're sort of pressured to vote a certain way or whatnot. Because if you don't, they're going to really challenge you um, as much as you can. Like how Nancy Pelosi said, oh, Alexandria's win doesn't represent all Democrats. And it's just like they, they're trying to brush off these significant victories. Um, but, you know, definitely if we won, what we tell people is even if we're green, we'd caucus with anybody who cares about the people. So let's say if Democrats wanted to put a bill for forgiving student loans, we'd go for it. If Republicans wanted to do a bill that abolishes ICE, we'll go for it. So, you know, we'll, we'll caucus with anyone who gives a damn. And that's sort of what Greens are about. We're, we're not against left versus right, but what's right versus wrong. And, you know, and we'll, we'll, we know we'll have some allies there, Tulsi Gabbard, um, Alexandria mm -hmm. and whatnot, Bernie. So Right, right. Yeah. And, and one thing that really, I think to me, is super exciting about the Green Party is that, well, and really, credit to Jill Stein, she kind of set the bar when it comes to talking about um, student loan debt. She right. started this conversation about canceling student loan debt, and now some Democrats are talking about it. You've adopted uh, canceling student loan debt. So can you talk about some of the ideas that really set you apart from progressive Democrats? Because I know you support the cancellation of student loan debt. Do you support a policy that I think people would freak out if we even talked about this, like universal basic income? What is your stance on that? Yeah, we actually have it on our platform. <laughs> That's awesome. We want to give a 12000 a year. Um, so, I mean, we're open to it. If you, if, you, if you think about it, people are, are suffering and there have been studies that in Finland and India where they do implement it, where they saw that people are actually using the money for food, uh, rent, things that should be basic human necessities. So definitely we would include uh, basic income, but we'd also want to make sure we still keep fighting for things like um, Medicare for all, education for all, because... Um, we want people to use that money to see if, you know, that could help them as well in terms of starting a business or, you know, having some time to relax. And so because I think a lot of people are afraid that if you put basic income, you'll take away everything else. And so right. we would definitely push radical legislation like basic income. That's great. And that's a really important distinction, because I think that that there is that kind of um, depiction of universal basic income that if you push for that, then the other policies like Medicare for all and free college wouldn't be necessary, but those would still be necessary. It's just, you know, basically making our economy work for working people. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask, because the thought of having a green party uh, member in Congress is very exciting to me. But my goal ultimately is to get a lot of Green Party members elected. And one way that we can do that is with electoral reform. Now, that's actually part of your platform. So right. I wanted to ask you about a bill that I think is really exciting. This is um, this was authored by Ro Khanna. This is H.R. 3057. And what this You've heard of it. Perfect. Okay, so for viewers who don't know, what HR 3057 would do is it would end gerrymandering. That's the first thing. Um, we'd move to nationwide ranked choice voting. And most importantly, in my opinion, is we would go from single member districts to multi member districts. Can you talk about why this is so important and why this could open a door to not just a third party, but fourth and fifth parties potentially? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, the, you said the main two things are uh, ranked choice voting and proportional representation, which is the multi uh, seats that you'll see in elections. Um, number one, ranked choice voting allows 
people to vote their conscience. If you are afraid that your vote will somehow miraculously allow someone uh, to be elected in office, like you saw it during the last election, like Donald Trump, you could essentially rank your, your vote. Let's say you wanted to vote for Jill Stein, then you vote second for Hillary, and then third for Gary Johnson and fourth for Trump. If your first vote, Jill Stein, in the first round of voting, if she ends up getting the least amount of votes, or if no one ends up getting 50%, your vote gets removed and goes to your second vote, Hillary. So essentially you're not getting scared or, or pressured into voting for someone you don't want to. And then, so that's ranked choice voting. The second thing is proportional representation is that um, if we have multi-seat districts, if I were to get like 20% of the vote and let's say there are, uh, let's say there are um, 10 seats up for grabs and let's say the green party line, we end up getting 20%, you know, that's like, that's like two seats. And essentially what that allows is it allows um, more parties to be involved and it allows coalitions to be built. So let's say if you, like right now you only get center Democrats and, you know, conservative right Republicans. And if you were to have a proportional representation government, you would have very even small minor parties like us who have one seat or two seats and be like, but we could be the balance of power and be like, hey, well, we think you should push harder on on universal health care or um, abolishing ICE. And so that's sort of why it's, it's important because it allows more democracy and it allows parties like us to have a seat at the table because right now we're not represented. And so that- Exactly. And, and it changes it from a zero sum game to a completely different system. So for example, in, in each district, we all only get to pick one person. Right. who we want to represent us. And usually it's just a Republican or a Democrat who ends up winning because a lot of people are afraid that the party that they don't like the most will win if they go third party. And there's a lot of third parties in the country. It's just a matter of getting them elected. But when you have this multi-member district and now sometimes three, four people get elected, then it makes it more likely that other parties can become politically viable. So that's why it's so important. And I kind of talk about electoral reform as being, I don't know if I'd say equally important as campaign finance reform, but it's certainly up there because it's yeah. it's part of the reason why we're not getting represented. Um, now, can you talk about um, campaign finance reform? Because I think this is also something that is just huge. What do you think is the solution to basically ending this legalized bribery system that we currently see it's, it's it's so hard like i'm we're living it our campaign in the past year and a half our congressman has raised over 1.5 million dollars um you know and us we raised close to probably a hundred thousand but we're, we're we're all small dollar donations mm -hmm. think about it they have a uh a freaking uh all this money that they could just send mail every day um, we're all people power. And so it, it, it's so hard to compete when PACs, super PACs, uh, co corporate PACs are basically funding these campaigns at max donations of $2,700 when for us, it takes us like a month to raise $2,700. So, you know, that's what, that's why we believe we should get all money out of politics. And if anything, it would be public campaign financing where um, each candidate who runs gets a certain amount and you actually have to work your ass off to earn people's votes. Like we, we, we knocked on 10,000 doors last election and we received uh, around 9,000 votes. Just think about like if we had more resources to, to do what our opponent did. And um, 
it would it would have put us on a, a very fair level playing field so right it's just it the playing field currently is not leveled and for people like you who don't take corporate pack money or any corporate money it makes it so difficult because you want to remain principled and you want to communicate to people that you're not going to get in there and be a corporate stooge but to do that you do have to disadvantage yourself and raise and struggle to raise you know like like you stated uh jimmy gomez has 1.4 million you have a hundred thousand which is actually really impressive by the way hundred thousand is that shows that you you have a lot of momentum now this is one thing that i wanted to ask you um and it kind of will lead into another question so we're kind of seeing this ongoing conversation in america about democratic socialism and social democracy so where do you think you and the green party falls are you more of a social democrat to where you believe that we should kind of have a mixed economy between socialism and capitalism or are you a democratic socialist where you kind of think we need to move beyond capitalism um, and and actually opt for a democratic socialist system. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, on the Green Party, our Green Party platform is um, we are eco-socialists. And essentially, we believe that many um, of the means of productions, especially for things like healthcare, education, um, housing, protecting our environment, the infrastructure, uh, many of these things that contribute to your very basic existence should be controlled not by any private private companies or any or be privatized at all or be treated as a commodity so we believe that those um especially many of the essential living things that we need needs to be um, operated and owned by the public sector like us and you know if you think about it it makes sense because right now everything right now is privatized from healthcare to uh, housing and 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 i hate the fact that we subsidize so many freaking rich companies like yeah health companies uh, <laughs> awful. Uh, <real> estate <laughs> developers to build affordable housing it's like why are we giving them like more money to build why don't we just why don't we do it you know like why don't we own the means of productions of providing um quality um services to people instead of letting the free market uh, compete with one another where, you know, in, in LA, uh, one big example is housing where the, the private market is competing against one another and they just keep building and building and building these luxury apartments that cost $2,000 a month for a studio or one bedroom and no one could afford it. And they're like, oh no, we just need to keep building because eventually <laughs> no one's going to go in there and then we're going to lower the price. And it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's so, ridiculous. So that's sort of how what, what I, um, our campaign believes, especially um, the, these basic human necessities should be human rights and should be operated by us, the people. So, And I, I love that answer so much. And the reason why I'm asking you that, because I'm someone who has kind of come out saying, don't focus on the isms, focus on the policies. And that's what you did. But the reason why I'm asking you this is because in the event you were to win, I think that so much of the media attention you'd receive, it'd be huge. Um, would be focusing on how radical you are. We kind of saw this with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We have people calling her a communist on Fox News. And this was something that was really fascinating to me back in 2016 when I was watching Jill Stein when she'd go on Fox News. One of my more popular videos was me talking about how um, basically she went on Fox News and made their heads explode because she was saying things that to them was so alien that they didn't know how to respond. And it was really basic. So I remember when it comes to, um, they asked her specifically about canceling student loan debt. How do you pay for that? You know, the question that all of us on the progressive left 
hate so much because it's so hacky. But she was asked how you pay for canceling student loan debt. And she said the same way you pay for the wars. And the mm -hmm. look on that Fox News host face was just a she was befuddled. She couldn't comprehend. Wait, what? What I'm curious to know is how you would respond to the mainstream attacks on you, because I don't feel as though as a Green Party candidate, you just get attacks from the right. I mean, Alexandria, you know, Ocasio-Cortez is getting attacks from other Democrats. So as a Green Party member, I feel like the establishment would just try to beat you down, you know. Um, so how would you respond to claims that you're radical? How would you respond to claims saying that everything you want is pie in the sky and it's never going to happen if you were elected? Right. Well, one of the good things about me personally, my background is I'm uh, I'm a CPA. So I look at finances. I see how much things cost and how much we make. And I could sort of say like, yo, listen, <laughs> you can listen. put them in check. <laughs> exactly. The F-35 program alone costs a couple trillion dollars. Um, and you don't see yourself saying, how are we going to pay for that? Like, so I think number one would just be showing people, showing facts about how much things cost already that we're spending on. And so what I was saying, um, well, we could allocate th these funds to, you know, let's say canceling student debt, you know what I'm saying? Or we could also say, show them, hey, well, look how much money you'll actually save when you don't have to pay your health insurance premiums every paycheck where you don't have to pay your copay and where you don't have to reach this high ass deductible. And then they'll be like, you know what? Like that, that, that makes sense. And I think what a lot of people is once they sort of sit down and they see these numbers and they're like, you know, this is not really pie in the sky. This is, this actually makes a lot of sense. I think many people when it comes to politics are driven by emotions. Um, but when you actually um, break it down to them and that's sort of what we'll do when we're in office, we'll literally buzz out these, these, these pie charts and Excel sheets. Cause <laughs> that's awesome. See, and I like that because if anyone can combat that bullshit, it's going to be someone like you who's a CPA. Exactly. So we'll, we'll show someone's like, hey, look at we spend this much. Look how much we spent here. We spent $6 trillion on the last 12 years of war, even more. Look how much we save here. Look how much we gave in tax cuts to the rich since Trump enacted the tax bill. We gave $2 trillion. Look how much we could save over here if we were to put that $2 trillion in uh, education. And it's just, you know, the things, things like, um, these make total sense once people break it down and, 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 and read through it. Uh, if it doesn't go, if it doesn't click at that point, then it's more like personal difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And really, I think what you're saying is really important. It just comes down to having conversations with people. And pretty much what you're telling me is that when you, um, if you win, when you inevitably are invited onto Fox News, when they try to bash you, it's going to be very interesting to see their head spin. Um, <laughs> in the same way that Jill Stein did today. <laughs> <laughs> so um tell us what we can do to support you because this is like this is a david versus goliath si situation i mean you're, you're being outspent by a gigantic margin and you need all the help you can get so what can we do if we want to support you um and help you beat jimmy gomez yeah so i mean we have a tough battle to go we got close to ten thousand votes in the primary he got fifty thousand. Um, we, we, our goal is to essentially use grassroots power where specifically our strategy is to recruit 10,000 nationwide volunteers. So any one of you watching here would help us, um, secure 10 votes. And the way you could do that is easy phone banking or two, 
if you know anyone who lives in LA personally, you could call them and be like, hey, can you vote for my friend Kenneth Mejia? And then you would just send me an email of their first and last name. Or three, if you live in LA, Canvas. And we don't have the money. If we try to compete with money with money, we're gonna lose. So we're gonna, we're just trying to compete um, with grassroots power. So the third one is if you live in LA, help us Canvas, help us talk to voters. And you, get, you all can sign up to phone bank, volunteer, Donate at MejiaForCongress.com, M-E-J-I-A, the number four, Congress.com. And this will literally take you like maybe two, three days to secure just 10 votes because we have uh, over uh, close to four months left. And if you think about it, 10 votes to secure over 10 months is doable. It's just a matter now of, of getting more and more people involved. So. Right. It's it's a people-powered movement. and. Yeah, I think that, 10, <laughs> exactly. You've done the math. You know, you know, you know what you need to win. Have you gotten much before we go? I just want to ask you about the coverage, because I think part of it as well for individuals who can't like go to California and knock on doors, sharing information about Kenneth Mejia is very, very important because part of it is a lot of individuals, I think, would be inclined to support these progressive grassroots candidates, but they just don't know about them. So have you gotten much coverage locally? Um, the thing about here, um, like the local media or whatnot, they don't, they don't see this as a high profile race. And also hmm. we're running as a third party as well. So it's very tough to get any coverage from anybody since, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the Democrats have a majority here. They're tied to like the LA times and, and all the other large news sources. So it's, it's been tough. Um, but um, that's something we're trying to do is get more attention uh, from nationwide, from anybody. If anyone knows celebrities, tweet them or whatnot. So it's it's been difficult, but we're we're trying to get more and more attention because he he doesn't even want to debate it. So um, you know we of course it. we put him on. We said, hey Jimmy, uh, even on online, like can you debate us? And he was deleting people's comments. And so wow, uh, you know, just that's the thing. He doesn't want to put any attention on it. So right. It gives because, yeah, debating you would give you intention and empower you in a way. And also it'd be incredibly embarrassing because we know that you would absolutely clean the floor with him. How old are you, Kenneth? Uh, 27. Yeah, he doesn't want to get beat by a 27 year old. You know that that's not a good look for him. So it makes sense why he's running scared. But the fact is that you do have him running scared because even though you're being outraised by such a gigantic margin, again, $100,000 of just small donations that's that's nothing to dismiss so he, he's got to be paying attention and what's important is that this is definitely a winnable race it just like you said um you've got to get the people to put in as much work as possible and put in the effort to get you to congress so look i'm gonna be watching very closely uh, i'll be rooting for you um if you got elected it would be absolutely huge it would be a national story um I think perhaps bigger than the Ocasio-Cortez story in many oh, ways. Because, we again, we've never had a Green Party elected to Congress. And if you want to see the difference between the Democratic Party and the Green Party and why Green Party is so much better on everything, 
I think having a Green Party person in Congress would make a difference. So, and also the the great thing that I like about you is that you're trying to get in there and make it so that way other Green Party and just third parties in general can get elected. That's so important. Just breaking up that duopoly is so fundamentally important right now and getting money out of politics. So look, I'm rooting for you. Um, I absolutely hope you can crush it. Uh, but it, look, I, the fact that you raised that much money is a really good sign. So I hope that Jimmy Gomez is scared and uh, knows that you're coming for him. Yeah, so I want to thank you, Mike, and I want to thank all our team. We're all 100% volunteers. We're students, high school, college, workers. I work. I'm like a full-time volunteer, too, uh, eight to six every day. Um, but we have hundreds of people out here on their own time, spare time, committing um, their time to basically talk to voters. And so I want to say thank you to everyone nationwide, everyone here locally, and for these local progressive media outlets, uh, like the Humanist Report, because, hey, it's, it's y'all who, who are putting us up and, and giving us this attention that we we so we, we really need. So thank you. Yeah, we're, we're trying, man. Well, well, good luck. Hopefully we'll have you back on the show again. Hopefully the next time you're on, you will be a member of Congress. Um, we're rooting for you. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Special thanks to my guests, Sarah Smith and Kenneth Mejia. Next week on the program, I will have Levi Sanders, a congressional candidate who also happens to be the son of Senator Bernie Sanders. Maybe you heard of him. <laughs> so we'll talk to him. It's going to be a great show. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you'd like to support the program, visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. And as usual, I want to end the show by thanking all of our current Patreon and PayPal contributors. I will see you all next week. Take care.